Andre Harrison. Happy birthday to you! Go to hell, you old bastard. Hey, I think they liked us. Have the Rolling Stones killed? Oh, sir, those aren't... Do as I say! So Guaranteed to be less complicated than the cycling points race. Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Hey guys, I'm Andre Harrison and welcome to episode 53 of Motorsport 101. We're recording to you live on August 17th and uh, it's, it's an obvious note of dimension but you probably have already known this already but today is my birthday. I am 24 years old today. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's the same age as me now folks. He uh, finally understands what I've been going through the last few months. <laughs> Oh, good. Yeah, like your struggle with Jack Daniels and Laura Trott is most definitely real, clearly. <laughs> you, hang on, my struggle with Laura Trott? <laughs> That's certainly not a struggle, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what kind of struggle we're talking about here. But, um, oh, <laughs> I walked into that one, to be fair. <laughs> Don't be bringing my bay into this. Yes. Uh, is he we for- already joked in the warm-up to this, uh, this show that uh, King's already had famous jokes about um, mm-hmm. Megan Klingenberg and Abby Wambach. Yes. This is now going to be my episode, RE Laura Trott. I'm so sorry, Jason Kenny. Actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> he so isn't sorry, but let's get the... Actually, I've just realised how Jason Kenny is just one of the most successful Olympians there that he could probably crush my head like a beer can. Yeah, probably. It wouldn't take much effort. He would just run his track tyre over your head. That would be fine. Um, <laughs> let's get the introductions out of the way. Um, first up, um, you've probably heard him already, but uh, Mr Adam Johnson is back after his first show in three weeks. Hello, Mr, Hello, Mr. Johnson. Is this my first show in three weeks? Oh my goodness! I'm so yes, sorry, folks. Yeah, that's yeah. what uh, an, an RC Racing Car World Championship in Italy will do that to you. But I'm I'm back and I'm I'm happy to be home. And yeah, Italy, up Italy drove him to the brink, but he's back with us. God bless him. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, literally, quite literally. You don't even know. Yep. And as ever, welcome him back. And also 20, 20 now twenty three years old because it was his it was his birthday last week. Hello, sir, Mr. Ryan King. Yes, thanks, Dre. Thank you, Dre. I'm just, you know, just soaking in this U.S. Olympic dominance. Listen, listen. listen. Are you not bored of that yet? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I remember, uh, I think it was either Saturday or the Sunday was actually the first day since 2008, since the 2008 Games, since the USA did not win a gold medal during a day of the Games. Oh, for wow. God's sake, King. <laughs> yeah. That's quite incredible. Oh, that, literally, that was the same day where it, uh, GB were like, this is our most successful away Olympics ever. We won six golds in one day. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, for what it's worth, guys, I, I'm we're, we're going to talk the Olympics for the next 15, 20 minutes. One, because it's not that stacked to show this week. And two, you guys seem to like it when we go off topic for some reason. So, obviously, the Olympics have been going around. And, and three, we all have our Olympic crushes. I think I've given yes. away mine already. Yes, like, you're giving away yours. King, who's yours? Uh, You're not going to like it. Oh, oh, really? Try me. <laughs> who, who are we talking about? It's not Elaine Thompson, is it? No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Alexander Reisman. You bastard! <laughs> Whoa! King, I will, I will fight you for this. <laughs> uh oh, I'm just gonna. Laura, let's just back out and leave him to it, honey. 
King, there's going to so, be some. Uh, King, there's going to be some black on black crime tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you to a fencing duel for, for Ali Reisman's heart. Meanwhile, so uh, Laura, let me get you some Jack Daniels. Tell me about going very fast around banked ovals. I really like that. <laughs> speaking, of, <clears throat> speaking of the tracks, I like them. Right. Did anybody see that Dutch girl that literally ran her bike across the wall to stop us? Oh my god! That was literally like a video game. Like it was like a glitch in Gran Turismo where you. It was something out of the fucking Matrix. It was brilliant. That was something out of Herbie Fully Loaded. Oh god! Like 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 we Brits, we actually interviewed her after because it was just that spectacular. But we we got to get some time with this girl real quick. Um, it was really great. Considering our BBC uh, BBC coverage has literally been like, where is a Brit vaguely in contention for a medal? Let's go there immediately. Doesn't matter. What we're covering at this point in time. Pretty so much. at that point, we were like, okay, no, 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 no. I don't even care that this girl wasn't British. We got to speak to her. Yeah, exactly. It's like, because we, we Brits, we are so optimistic over everything. Like, if ever we've got even a whiff of a chance of a medal in something, we will cut straight to that coverage to find yeah. out. Which like, is, go on, King. Like, Admittedly, the only time this game's that Team J, Team GB gave me like a legitimate heart attack was during the, was during the relay medley in swimming. <laughs> Oh god, Adam Peaty. My god. Adam Peaty is an animal at that terrible stroke what we call the breast stroke. Like it's a god awful swimming technique. As a guy that knows how to swim, like that is an awful technique, yet Adam Peaty is somehow a god at it, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah like during that relay, the first leg of the relay, uh the US swimmer literally set a world record. Mm -hmm. And then the next leg, Peaty goes in the pool, Peaty comes out the pool, Britain has a lead. Yeah, Brittany and he, he smashes his own world record point, by half King a second. And at this point, King is leaning forward at his chair like his face is pressed up against the TV screen going, No! <laughs> Phelps, Phelps, save us! <laughs> save us one last time, baby. <laughs> and they, they just about got there. And it, 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 like, Phelps, like, Phelps wasn't exactly breaking free from the British dude on his leg either. It was, it was the final no. leg that, 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 that did the damage, really. But, yeah. I mean... Guys, I've got to ask, like, so far, favourite Olympic moment so far from, from Rio? You're quick. Uh, tough question. I mean, for I me, one. like, uh, I can only have one. Okay, well, I've enjoyed the Rugby Sevens being a thing. Yeah. That's been really cool. But to be honest with you, probably... Uh, do you know, it's been really hard because I've, I've loved the track cycling. Mm -hmm. It's been... Uh, and helpfully this Just time around. Just Laura Trot already, for God's sake. <laughs> I'm building up to it. She deserves nothing less. Um... But I have had a friend of mine recently who is a she's Australian and she is crazy into her track cycle. She used to she used to compete herself actually, and she's actually helped me um, understand a lot more of the rules and the nuances of everything. So I've enjoyed it even more this time. And I was telling the guys before the show, they found it hilarious that naturally I related everything she was saying to me back to NASCAR because <laughs> hey, I even showed her a clip of NASCAR at Bristol and I was like, this is kind of similar, right? She was like. Yeah, basically it's the same except ten times faster and with twice as many wheels. I'm like, yeah, there you go. Um, so, oh god, I don't know. There were so many like the the finish to the men's Kieran with Jason Kenny. Oh two, my goodness! Two false starts and then Kenny still wins it after going through. I was pretty crazy for me. Yeah, I have to say Wade Van Niekerk's world record in the 400 mm. meters was one of the most ridiculous runs I have ever seen. Like. To put it into perspective, Wade Van Niekirk was in lane eight for this race. <laughs> the wide the lane. lane. <laughs> he was the wide lane, and he ran 43-0-3. This kid is an absolute freak. He's the only man in history 
to have a personal best sub 10 hundred sub 2200 and he's now just ran 4303 in lane eight in the 400 meters that kid is that kid is an absolute phenom like Jonathan, just to give you an idea of what like how like psychologically damaging lane eight is think of it like being in the lead of a plate race in nascar in the last lap it's like lane eight it's the same distance as all the other lanes but you're starting out in front so you can't tell like how you're out wide you you are under you're you're sitting dark basically yeah you can't tell where everyone else Mm. is in comparison to you until after the turn Oh, I have thought of a couple of others, like honorable mentions. Um, Mo Farah. Yeah, Mo Farah. Oh, the fallen win. Oh, God. And the the moment where he he motored past his closest rival off the final corner and looked over and did a Usain Bolt grin at him. (laughs) And his opponent just sort of looked at him and went, no! Fucking, I give up. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Are you serious? And then, obviously, let's give, let's give a shout-out to my bae. Um, <laughs> my favourite moment of the Omnium, like, awesome across the whole thing, but it was the moment in the elimination race, which is one of my favourite things. Seriously, yeah. somebody mooted this on Twitter. You know that people were talking about a qualifying race for F1? Somebody went, well, do you know what? Why not make it an elimination race like the cycling? I'm like, yes, I am down for that. That was some of the most thrilling racing in the whole of the Olympics. But it was the moment in that where Trot had survived all these different rounds. Mm-hmm. And then it was just her head to head with the Belgian girl. And the Belgian girl's looking over her shoulder going, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, God. And it's just like Trot's just eyeballing her. Like, Go on, then. Go on. I dare you. I dare you. And as soon as the Belgian stepped on the gas, Trot gassed her so badly on the final lap she literally spent the the final run to the line off the final corner waving at the crowd she knew she knew oh yeah like that was literally like Usain Bolt levels of just like yeah I'm that good I'm I'm, I'm gonna stunt all the way to the line here I'm gonna stunt this which is hilarious because her and Jason Kenny are the most British athletes ever because they'll be (laughs) like they'll crush people on the track and then go off the track and go well, that wasn't bad, was it? Oh, I couldn't. Be- I can't believe it. So I wasn't modest. expecting that. Like, 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 Laura Trot is the most sickeningly humble human being. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god, she's almost like this. She's almost like. I mean, even Scott Dixon isn't that like. <laughs> no. I hate you because you are that perfect. Yeah, like she, she, like bless her. She won a fourth Olympic medal in the Omnium last night. Was absolutely tremendous in the points race to finish it off, and then. That Jill Douglas is interviewing her, and she's she's on the brink of tears, and it's just the sweetest thing al- alive. And I, I have to mention this: like she she posted one of the all-time great tweets in the middle of that brilliant cheering <laughs> finish, <laughs> Jason <laughs> Kenny uh, after those two false starts. The tweet goes, and I quote: "Ah, I love him to bits at Jason Kenny 107. Our kids have to get some of these genes, right?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Name this woman." <laughs> They're going to breed the entire next generation of British track cyclists. <laughs> that that tweet is, has been retweeted 11,000 times. Well, not surprising. <laughs> it's kind of funny how it's only now that people have picked up on the, the kind of these two as like the money power couple of British the Olympics. Couple. Like, mm. The golden couple, quite literally. Like They've been dating since, I think they were dating at London 2012. Uh, yeah. And the first they, moment they, that they anyone realized they were a thing. Yeah, literally, the only the only reason anyone realised they were a thing is that they saw them sitting together, being kind of coupley behind David Beckham at the volleyball finals in London 2012. That was it. <laughs> that and it's so like, British. <laughs> it's so British. It's wonderful. And like, here's my favourite. They did an article on them today on the BBC Sport website, um, oh. where they. I just, I'm just going to find the quote because it talks to their mums 
which I think, again, is just so British in itself. Yeah, they had, um, they had the entire family in the BBC booth at the end of the cycling last night, like, including both both Jason Kenny's parents, like, the entire Trot family, like, Becky James family. Not that Becky James, by the way. Just, 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 worth <laughs> just thought I'd get that mention in there, because she got two silvers, one in the um, one in the team and one in the Kieran, both losing out to Christina Vogel, that blasted ridiculously fast German girl. She's a machine, though, yeah, like, to like, be fair. She, she, she destroyed was her own bike yeah, to beat Becky James. Yeah, like, she was real bitchy, though. Like, like, like she's, she's won the world title seven times, right? And she said... I find it weird how all these British athletes are always so oh, good at the Olympics. Yeah, only good at the Olympics, and I'm like, shut up, shut up, shut oh, up. Seriously, shut up. Like, that's Ray Hall levels of salt right there. Salt. Like, you Graham won. Why are you watching. being salty? <laughs> you just want the gold for fuck's sake. What's your name? Anna Mears. <laughs> like, seriously, but my favourite takeaway from this article, uh, well, there's quite a few. The fact that they randomly proposed to get married while they were sat on the sofa one night. Yep. Like, literally, it just was just like, do you want to get married? Yeah, okay. But that was it. Very and, English. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then just my favourite point is the moment that Jason's parents clocked that they were a thing. It was the first time he brought her home. And the quote goes like this. This is from Jason's mum. The first time I knew something was happening between the two of them was when Jason phoned me up and said, I'm bringing Trotty home for a bacon butty. I said to him, <laughs> is she your girlfriend? Nah, she's just a friend. <laughs> see, You see that, kids? You see that? That's where it starts. That's low key right there. But if, if that's just low, I could just imagine him like just afterwards, like, so you know, there's nothing going on between you and Trotty. Yeah, mum. What about that moment where you snogged her on the sofa? That's just what mates do, isn't it? <laughs> no, no big deal. Where, where, where are these mates and where can I find them? Like, <laughs> oh God. like literally it's at the point now where like Trot is my bae. You may have worked this out, yeah, but yeah. I, I, I can't even be mad at Kenny. Like yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, what a guy. OTV. <laughs> OTV. Yeah. Like, even King like, approves at this point. Like he's an honorary oh, Englishman as it is already. Yeah. Uh, we're honorary Americans. And you know, you were talking about great tweets and great posts. Mm-hmm. Like how sickeningly sweet Trot is. Yeah. Her reaction to her Instagram post for her first goal of this games was checks under pillow. This really did happen last night with a photo of her laying in bed with her gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my, can you just stop? How can one person be this adorable and yet this much of a killer on the track? I want to cuddle this woman. She's too she's adorable. Like, she's like track cycling's Mark Marquez, effectively. Exactly. It's ridiculous. Good, good God. Basically. Like this, oh, po- this podcast is going to be like an hour and a half of us just gushing over Lord yeah, yeah. We, we still haven't gotten to my favorite Olympic moment yet. Go on, I was going to say, yeah, sorry, yeah, King. King's been completely <laughs> overshadowed here by Johnson's love affair at this point. God damn it. Nah, nah, sorry, I'm, I'm going to put my heart away Because my favorite, my favorite moments are obviously predictably American moments. <laughs> Really? What a, <laughs> what a surprise! I picked the oh, South shit. African guy. Way to go, King! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, there's honestly so many to choose from. Like, there's yeah. the, you know, uh, the women's team gymnastics, Simone Biles. Oh, and the, God, Simone Biles. What an incredible athlete. As I mentioned, Simone Biles, what an incredible specimen she is. What unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> and then her adorable little video of Zach Afron giving her a kiss on the cheek. Oh, that was cute. It's easy to forget she's only 19 years old, yet that's still somewhat kind of terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, similarly, this will be my last mention of her for the episode. (laughs) You know, we're talking about you turning 24, Dre? Yes. Trot's the same age as us. She's a month younger than me. 
<laughs> what have I done with my life? <laughs> on the other hand, yeah, for fuck's sake, I'm sat here on a fucking motorsport podcast drinking Jack Daniels, and she's won yeah, four yeah, gold medals. Yeah, yeah. She's got four gold medals. Yeah, shut up, hey, Johnson. Hey, Laurie, Laurie Hernandez has won like two two gold medals in in gymnastics, and she's like sixteen. Sixteen. Like, so yeah. Shout out to Amy Tingler that got bronze in the floor exercise last night as well. She's only sixteen as well. She's getting her GCSEs the moment she comes back from Rio, which is just mental. And it's oh, so that's like, wonderful. It's I've, I've liked. Do you know what I like about the Olympics the most though? I love the random like some of the outtakes, the little stories that you don't hear much oh, about, or the little guys. That's the like, magic of it. Yeah, like um, for example, uh, uh, one of I've been watching a lot of the boxing and the Brazil won their first ever Olympic gold medal in the boxing discipline with a guy called Robson Conceição and I watched the final and of course home fans going ballistic for him madness um, oh, they, told the stories, they told the story during his fight of how he started out when he was young he was a street vendor knocking on the w- windows of passing cars to sell them vegetables he described himself as a tearaway child he couldn't afford boxing gear to the extent that he'd fake hand injuries and then use the bandages he was given by the hospital to tape up his gloves. Oh, no. And then oh, no. he goes and wins fucking Olympic gold in front of his home crowd. Like, you can't write that shit. Like, if they wrote that as a script for a new Rocky film, people would just be like, <laughs> nah, get man. the fuck out of here. It was like, That's wait, we're taking Rocky back to the old days where it was like, you know, unrealistic, like, just big punch boxing? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Rock'em, suck'em, but, uh, robots, but, bro. Yeah, I mean, uh, my favorite living moment, I think a close second for me was uh, Simone Manuel winning the 100 freestyle in the pool. Uh, as, uh, a moment, as a moment of seriousness, if anyone knows American history, and if especially if you're black, you know exactly why yeah. that is a massive, massive deal. Yeah, that's all yeah, I'll say really on that. Cool. Yeah, so but cool. I, I, I had to, my favorite moment had to be Katie Ledecky winning the oh 200, God. 400, and 800 meter freestyles all in landslides. Can I just say, I love, like, like shout out to Katie Ledecky, the Michael Phelps of swimming. Um, no, just, <laughs> Katie Ledecky is an absolute animal. My, like, she is unbelievable. Oh like, God. I've heard stories that she's faster than some of the men in the US team, and she's legitimately... Yeah. Beating some of the men in the in the freestyle, which is just unbelievable. Like Katie Ledecky is an absolute animal. It, it goes to show you just how much things can change. Because like four years ago, it was Missy Franklin. Missy Franklin yeah. was like this held as this great superstar for for American swimming. The next thing she's been passed by because of injury and whatnot. And now Katie Ledecky is an absolute freak. Um, yeah. But, um, oh, like I've just found. I've literally just done a search for Katie Ledecky because what I was going to do mm. was actually she was part of some of the really crappy coverage of the female athletes in this like the yes absolutely. i can't remember who it was king you'll be able to tell me one olympian was described as nfl player's wife wins a medal at yeah. rio yeah. Who cares otherwise like but what i found instead is pretty cool uh, it's on a website called vox culture yeah. and oh, it's vox. an article someone has got uh, someone has basically drawn four i think of america's Olymp- female olympians as marvel superheroes Ah. Uh, Ledecky's one of them. She's drawn as like a. She kind of looks like Storm from X Men. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she's pretty swimming, cool. out swimming dolphins. Um, there's Tamika Catchings, uh, basketball player, uh, rising above the entire New York skyline to dunk a basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Simone by Biles. Simone Biles. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, Simone Manuel. 
uh, yeah. we were just talking about a lot uh, but it's all like comic book style artwork and it's the most badass thing ever <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so cool it is so so cool if I could draw I'd do some for um the, the whole <laughs> thing. Yes. Not just, not just Laura. No. I don't know what you're talking about. Liar. Liar. But um, just just back to me for a couple of seconds. Yeah, I mentioned Wade Van Niekirk. He was incredible. The reaction to Usain Bolt's 100-meter gold. Mm. The first man to win three Olympic 100-meter titles in a row. And especially with Justin Gatlin in the ultimate heel role. Oh, gosh. Like, like, like Gatlin's not even asking to be booed at this point. He's just the poster boy for doping at this point. And it was really awkward. Like, I guess they, like you may have seen it this time around the track, they got these really, like, these new entrances where they introduced them all one by one coming out of the tunnel and Gatlin got booed the crap out of. And, like, I mean, I, that's one of the, like, out of all the complaints, like, leading up to the games, the single biggest complaint had, like, nothing to do with organization. It had mainly to do with the fans. Yeah, like you may have seen it with the, on the poll vote last night with um, oh god, yeah, that was poor. Renault Lavier um getting booed during his final attempt on 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 the pole vault and then getting booed again on the podium. To be fair, he didn't exactly help on Twitter when he compared the booing to 1936 in Berlin. Oh dear, <laughs> but that, that's the ultimate example of I'm frustrated and oh shit, what have I just said? No, 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 Renault, no. Because he seems like a really nice guy as yeah, well. He, he broke down Can I just say, though, probably once again, this Olympics has proven that the MVP of BBC's Olympic coverage is Michael Johnson. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> word. What a guy. Like, he like, will call... Johnson, he calls us the, the funniest thing is, like, even during NBC's coverage, they'd be like, uh, like, oh, we're about to do, the, like, the 100-meter hurdles, and then they do a little pan shot, and then over there, covering the event for the BBC, it's 96 gold medals, Michael Johnson. It's like he, he he's somehow managed King. to be, He's ours now. <laughs> when, uh, was it Van Niekerk who, bo- who broke his world record? Yeah, Van Niekerk, yeah. Yeah, when Van Niekerk broke his gold re- uh, world record, he somehow managed to be humble, respectful, and still bring it back to him. Yes. Like, he was able to still be modest and then still go, well, I'd want him to enter this other event and win that because, uh, well, who did that first time around? And everyone was <laughs> laughing. So it was like, oh, well played, Michael. You've yeah. been modest up until now. You're still reminding him you're the original. Yeah, it's something I've got to say. The BBC's coverage across the board from their main anchors has been superb. Helen Skelton's done a tremendous job in the swim in. Claire Dan Bolden has been awesome. Claire Bolden, as usual, her brilliant self as, a, as always. Um, Simon Chris, Brotherton, Brotherton. Uh, on the track cycling. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. normally a football commentator, yeah. but he's been brilliant in the track cycling. Jack Nichols has been doing the handball, which has been crazy. Really? Well, yeah, just sort of the Jack Nichols. But yeah, yeah, but Mike, Michael Johnson is the goddamn man. Like, King, he's out now like well, i'm sorry we claimed him he's, he's an honorary I, now. I literally i said to my i was watching some of the track and field with my dad and i literally went if you think about it in terms of voice michael johnson's kind of like sports coverage morgan freeman yes yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like it's, it's mean as well he has that way of talking like which is just awesome yeah like van like van eco when he breaks the world record like they cut to johnson Johnson just goes oh my god <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like I wish NBC could hire Michael Johnson, but it's the fact that like NBC's staff is so old that they barely hire anyone new. Yeah, it's amazing. But uh, like Michael Johnson was so awesome in how he covered. Like he said, he, he, can I just ask? Oh well, I guess oh. NASCAR's still been going on. Have they had any of the like NASCAR commentators or the IndyCar guys uh, doing any of the? They Olympics? had. Uh, they had. Uh, I'd Lee love Diffie. to see Rick Allen doing the track cycling. They had uh, Lee Diffie, uh, NBC F1 commentator. He does. He did the rowing. Mm-hmm. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. He's one of my favorite commentators. Yeah. yeah. 
But uh, yeah, so that's a little thing there. So we may, you mentioned that Jack Nichols is doing the handball uh, out there in Rio, and Lee McKenzie, you may you may know from from um, Channel Four F One and obviously from former BBC days, she's she's been doing the question because she's a massive horse fan, always has been. So it's kind of funny as well because uh, I know, obviously being a rugby fan, I know Eddie Butler quite well. He's a, a Welsh uh, former rugby international, mm-hmm. and obviously he does rugby. Last few years at the Olympics, he's done archery, I think. But obviously this time around, rugby's been in the Olympics, so he's been doing yeah. that alongside Sir Clive Woodward, and it was uh, really entertaining. Mm-hmm, exactly. So all those little things there, again, we, we might do a little bit more on the Olympics next week, but there's been just, just some amazing moments right there that I think we definitely was worth talking about. Now on to boring and, and topical motorsport discussion for the next hour. Oh, or so. God, have we got to talk about this? Yes. Like, it was funny because today I was like, oh, there's no track cycling anymore. No more Laura Shot. Oh, I've got to watch motorised bikes. Oh, that's boring. <laughs> uh. King, I think we may need to follow a restraining order at this rate. Like the same one that Nelson Piquet's got after that Brazil podium incident. Yeah, that might, that, <laughs> that, 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 that might be a problem. It's like, or, like, or, we could, that? or we could just, you know, start a new podcast where you just talk about sports that's not motorsport. Yeah, like like everything but motorsport 101. Like, like, Clearly, like, like everyone's been, it's weird because everyone's been telling me that like Dre, you should do a football podcast because you seem to really know stuff, and I'm like, no, like football is not ready for me. <laughs> like, I would. Oh, break- God. Well, we haven't finished fi- fixing motorsport. We'll t- we'll explain further <laughs> what we mean by that later. But we're yes. we're trying to fix motorsport first. Yes, but uh, like we'll get to later. Like people said, oh Dre, like like football is not ready for me. Like my hot takes would destroy like every football podcast on earth like yeah like and if, if you haven't noticed on my end like i basically watch anything yeah like we really do like me, like me and king are just sports junkies we will watch practically anything at this point um, and i'll watch what they won't like yeah. rugby and roller derby yeah. Yeah. I, I love sevens so sevens oh, great. Sevens sevens great. Man. like problem is like poor fiji was, they were, was like facing seven virgins of adrian peterson out there all at the same time england got completely <laughs> It's, um... Yeah, it was literally. I was in Italy for the men's sevens final, and obviously being a rugby fan, my my uh, my parents are like rugby mad as well. So they were like, "Oh, Britain have made the final." They're pl-, and I was like, "Oh wow, who are they playing?" Fiji. Uh oh. Sad. And then thirty minutes later, I just got a WhatsApp. Yeah, Fiji kind of schooled us. I was like, "Oh man." <laughs> Yeah. But hey, it was their first gold medal ever, wasn't that's, it? Yeah, yeah, first ever Olympic medal. So congratulations to the Fiji guys. Right, we've got to talk about motorsport now. I'm sorry, we got. I'm, I'm drawing oh, a line here. Shot. <laughs> I'm drawing oh, a line here. This, this, this is my. This is my. Like this is me drawing the line on the whole thing right there. Right. <laughs> let's talk about the interesting yet kind of not really weekend that was MotoGP in in Austria. And uh, yeah, Red Bull Ring returned to um returned to Austria now. Fun fact: Valentino Rossi was the only man that actually raced the last time we had a a MotoGP weekend in Austria. I think it was 1997, I want to say, was the last time we were in Austria. And uh, we were back. It was nice. There was some testing around there earlier and during the summer break um, where Ducati looked strong and they would go on to cash that in as a... Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. For the first time in 2000, I think... Two, I want to say... I, I, let me find the exact number of days here. I want to make this sound all cool. I want to give a shout-out to, to, to Hannah Smith on Twitter for this one. But uh, I believe it is, oh, God, 2,128 days. There you go. 2,128 days. Ducati has won a MotoGP race. Woo! Yeah! Mm. (laughs) No? No. That's a big silence. Yeah, yeah. 
I want to be excited, but I, it to me it felt like this day should have come a lot sooner. It's, it's not like they haven't had chances. They they have had like any time it rains, Ducati is automatically a contender. But yeah. they, like like Assen, they probably should have won that race. Petrucci was not only leading that; he was leading in Germany as well. Dovi is super strong in the wet with that GP16, and both times he's either a bottled it or two chosen the wrong strategy, um, which hasn't exactly been ideal, but um, they finally got the W. Nothing went wrong. Ian only didn't dive-bomb the crap out of the pair like, like he did in Argentina. Um, they survived, and it was a not only a win, it was a 1-2 finish for Ducati as Andrea Ian only took his first ever MotoGP win. And King, after the season he's had, um, which has been, let's be honest here, kind of wretched um, in the grand scheme of things, what a moment for the, for the maniac. <laughs> yeah, to, to finally be on the top step. <laughs> it, it, that part of things, I was definitely excited for. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the celebrations were amazing. He did this beautiful tandem wheelie down the back straight with Valentino Rossi, who is, is his, his idol as a bike rider. No surprises there. Like, we're talking about Rossi as in terms of idol worship from a guy that's only 10 years younger than him. It's kind of mental to think about that. I, like, with Marquez, it's understandable because Marquez is only 23 and Rossi's 37. But Ian only is, is a little bit older. It's like, that's his idol and he gets to weave him back to the pits and he like he, he almost like copied the Marquez celebration in Park Fermi where he's like, he's, he's building it up with, with, with the clicks and then he just runs into his team <laughs> and they hoist him up in the air. Like, he's, he's a bit bigger than Marquez so they can't do the whole, we're gonna, we're gonna toss him up in the like a bad stir fry or something but uh it, it, it was hilarious and you know a great win for Rianoni. he was he was superb but king i mean the biggest takeaway from this place is that jacati have a legitimate track where they can win now on this calendar <laughs> yeah i mean hopefully they ho- like i heard that they're aiming to change things in the future so that might lean okay. away towards their favor but Hopefully this will be a place where Ducati can get some very solid results. It would be nice because, let's be real here, I mean, the fact this is the first Ducati win for six years says something. The first, I mean, we've had an independent win before we've had a Ducati win in recent times, which should say a lot about the state of where their factory has been. They've been struggling for a long time. I I think since 2008, they've not really been the same as when Casey Stoner won his title. They won less and less. Stoner left. They were never able to fill that void, even with Valentino Rossi in the in the in in the garage and in the team. He was never able to win with what they had, and um, they've been looking for stopgap solutions ever since. It's just not quite worked out for them. And you know, we've been critical of Ianoni, that's for sure, and deservedly so. He's been he's had a couple of real reckless moments this season. Um, to say the least, but um, a, a great, great win for, for Ian Oney. But King, how salty is Dovi going to be? Knowing this was his 250th career race this time round. <laughs> 250 up for Dovi. The biggest chance he's ever had to win just his second career race in, in the top flight. And then this happens. <laughs> oh, just, uh, I mean... I feel bad for Davi, but I'm so excited for Iannone, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's fair. Yeah, it's fair. It's, it's a bit disappointing that Davi couldn't, you know, do even better than, do better or get a race win. Yeah, it's weird but, because like, it's, it's weird because there was so much hype about it. Like Iannone was being held as this next alien. He really was. He was being held as like, this guy was ludicrously fast. He's been so impressive. 
the last two seasons when he was a Pram actor, he got the bump to the factory team. He he schooled Dovi last season head to head. He was looking good for an extension, and Dovi was going to be the one to to make way for Ironi, and then the Argentina crash happened. It's like, in a sense, it's a little bit like Daniel Kvyat in a sense where. Kvyat was, you know, seemingly impressive, but, you know, made one mistake and then he's been victimized ever since. You know, he's kind of similar in that regard, where he made the one major error at Argentina and then they immediately pulled his contracts offer. And then they changed their minds altogether and kept Dovi for the seat next year and instead got rid um, instead got rid of Ian Oni. He's going to Suzuki next year, in case you in case you guys didn't know already. But um yeah, very, very bizarre circumstances. But again, a, a great win for Ian Oni. Dovi, will, you know, Dovi, being the, the great team player that he is, he'll be very happy with second. But I think he'll be a little bit gutted he didn't get the W on that one. But also, King, given where they were in, in terms of distance before the weekend had started, I think Yamaha can be very happy with how this weekend turned out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> the third and fourth is definitely something to be you know, excited about. Mm. Uh, I mean, if, I wish yeah, they... Because they found, yeah, because they found the second overnight between between Friday and Saturday. Yeah, they found a second overnight between Friday and Saturday, but it, it's a shame that they couldn't be more competitive against the Ducatis. Like, clearly, yeah. Ducati have the power game down better than anyone else. Yeah. Straight line, no one's going to beat them. Basically, yeah, that, that's the long and the short of it. No one's beaten him in a, in a head-to-head speed-off or drag race with them, and that's how they were able to win this one. Yamaha, like Lorenzo, was very happy with the third. He said himself, as he said, this felt like a win, um, given how far off they were. Marquez took the pretty comfortable fifth place in the end. Again, Honda just did not have any real answer for him. This, like, this is the contract that Honda would, dis- would despise um, in the grand scheme of things. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a shame. It's like, if you take away the intrigue of... Um, if you take away the intriguing factor of Ducati winning this race, it really wasn't that exciting. There was a couple of passes for the league here and there. But Yamaha and, and Ducati were in another league compared to everybody else um, on the day. Like, Marquez was in, a, was in a field of his own. Like, he had cleared Vinales at that point. Um, and then, like... Like it was, it was, it was like watching a Formula One race. So we're all just kind of spread out a little bit, pretty much, in terms of the, how the front seven fared in the end. It was a reasonably good race, but um, nothing, you know, massive to, to really take away from that. And um, yeah, like it, it, it was okay, but I don't think there's anything really to write home about. So just a quick rundown of the race result: there, Ian only wins from Dovi, just behind, just under a second behind Lorenzo, third ahead of teammate Valentino Rossi, which he'll be very happy about in terms of the title fight. Marquez in fifth, no major damage to the title could lead there, but that's concerned. Vinales in sixth, Danny Pedrosa seventh, Scott Redden top independent finisher in eighth place. God damn it! Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that was a thing. Um, Bradley Smith in ninth, ahead of Paul Spagaro in 10th. Nino Petrucci 11th. You beat Michele Piro over the line by 1-1,000th one, of a second. Hooray. Good luck spreading that one in the photo for off. Um, Laurie Spaz in 13th place. Um, Rabat 14th. And Cal Crutchlow, he was the last of the point scorers in 15th. I don't know if you saw it, King, but that was a massive jump start. Um, 
Well, it, was yeah. like, it was like Murder to Mikata. Five riders jumped the start, including Hector Barbara, who ignored it and got black flagged. <laughs> yep, and apparently, uh, apparently, I know that the Aprilia camp were very furious over their riders jump starting. And why was this? Um, apparently, like, it was down to a technical problem with the bike, and it was basically their own incompetence. Ugh, Jim. Um, t- <laughs> That doesn't seem great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I believe it was Hector Barbara, Alvaro Bautista, Stefan Bradl, um, I think it was Yoni Hernandez and Cal Crutchlow were the five jump starters. So they had to, they had to do a ride-through penalty. Hector Barbara ignored the, the, the warning, the dashboard warning for it. And he was black flagged and disqualified. Uh, so yeah, there you go. Um, that's the pretty much the full result where that's concerned. Moto2 was actually a pretty good race for their standards. But it was clear that Johan Zarco was the, the strongest guy in the field by a mile. He won the race by three seconds. Um, he was. He took him a little while to get there through the field because he had a terrible start to knock him down from pole position down, I think, into seventh place. But he clawed his way back through the field to take a pretty comfortable win in the end. Had a Frankie Morbidelli, a career-high finish for him for the Mark VDS team. That's the best Mark VDS result this season for them in second place, ahead of Alex Rins in third for the um, yeah, the Pages team. Thomas Luti, consistent as ever, in fourth place. Um, Marcel Schrotter, best of the rest in fifth. Nice result from him there. I think that's Schrotter's best ever result in Murder 2, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Alex Marquez, you know, the guy we you like to whack with a piñata for not being as good as his brother in sixth place there. Um, the head of Takanaka Gami, Lorenzo Baldassari, Axel Pons, Dominique Agata in tenth, ahead of Cortese. Danny Kent scored some points. Hooray! Danny Kent in twelfth place. Oh, God. Uh, Bassini in thirteenth, Miguel Oliveira, fourteenth, and Julian Simon at the last of the points in 15th. Poor Sam Lowe's crashed it twice in that race. Turn 9 as well. Very bumpy out there. Not not recommended if you're going to bin the bike. No. And can we just not mention it to our Becky James? Oh. <laughs> Be careful what you say here, Johnson. She, she, knows, what, she, she knows us very well now. I'm well aware. Be ca- be- and I'm prepared for the circumstances, mostly. <laughs> mostly. <laughs> it may just be the Jack Daniels talking. Go on. But, yeah, Becky James, come at me. (laughs) Becky James of Bike Live, not the silver medalist from the Olympics. I have nothing but respect for you and your teammate. I'm I'm going, like, is this a declaration of love live on the podcast? (laughs) I don't even know why, how, what, I don't even know. Like, in case, like, for those unaware, now this is a little behind-the-scenes moment here on the podcast. Johnson has been sipping Jack Daniels and Coke since we started this taping, and that was 38 minutes ago. Um, may the good Lord help us all from this point going forward. Um, but yeah, Sam Lowe's awful, awful weekend from him, really, and that's that may have very well taken him out of title contention, given he's now 55 points behind Johan Zarco. Again, who- Salzbecks. Yeah, Sosbex. And uh, yeah, Johan Zarko, who, by the way, did his usual Zarko flip celebration in Lederhosen. Very impressive, I must say. It wasn't like the Red Bull in, in, in Austria where they they were just right. They, they had Lederhosen, like, patched onto their uniforms. He actually put on some Lederhosen and then did the flip. <laughs> like, Johan Zarko, give that man all the marketing money. He gets it. He absolutely gets it. And uh, yeah. Props to him. Awesome stuff. But um, also, Moto3, by the way, and it wasn't your usual 22-bike 
absolute chaos pit for the for the win, but it was a very strong battle of five. Passes around every single corner. But it was Joanne Mir who, from pole position, I think he's the first man, I think, in 11 races to win a Moto3 race from pole position, <laughs> which is just kind of mental. Um, Joanne Mir qualifying on pole and then taking the win and narrowly pipping Brad Binder to the post. Binder's consistency once again shining through. Second place from him. Another strong result. Um, Enea Bastianini in, in third there, rounding off the podium ahead of Fabio Quattararo in fourth, matching his best result in Moto3 to date. And the young German, Philip Otel, rounding off the top five. That was the battle of five for the win. It was a great race. Only six tenths covering all five of those riders over the line ahead of Jorge Martin, uh, King's best friend, Bo Benschneider for the KTM team there in seventh. Yep. Um, yep, Fabio Giantonino in eighth ahead of Bulega, Loy, Magnaia, Guevara, Locatelli, Herrera, and Ono to round off the points. So King, like, you, just, just a quick side note. Like, we've, we've heard that KTM have now confirmed they're going to be in Moto2 next year with their KTM chassis. You liking the team of uh, Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira going forward? Oh, of course, yes. I love that team in Moto2. And apparently, of the the crop of three bikes they that they're gonna have next year, that the Moto2 could the Moto2 bike might be the strongest since they you know since they're essentially a, a motorcycle manufacturer who only have to build a chassis around another manufacturer's engine. It helps. I think it certainly helps. I mean, I mean. No, no, no outfit in Moto2 has the kind of resources that KTM would have at their disposal because, like, Calex and Suter and all of them, like, Suter's pretty much dead in terms of Moto2 now, but Calex is the dominant chassis provider over there. If KTM can find something that's a little bit quicker than that with their resources and money, I mean, a factory outfit of Miguel Oliveira replacing Johan Zarco and then Brad Binder on the second bike, whew! <laughs> that's, that's a pretty nasty. That's a pretty nasty looking team there going forward. That's going to be uh, one I'd be looking looking very closely at. Now, there was one overwhelming story regarding Moto Three. Now, you you may have noticed during that run. Now, I didn't talk about Romano Fanati because he got credited with a DNS. He did not start. <laughs> like, like, Andre, like, why did he not start? <laughs> He has been suspended from the VR46 racing team. This was a bombshell that dropped on Saturday evening, the night of the night, the, the night before the Grand Prix. That uh, the, the VR46. And trust me, when you hear this, he's going to be stealing my Jack Daniels with how badly this went. <laughs> ah, yeah, this is this, this is kind of mental. But um, yeah, the story dropped that um, Saturday night, the, the VR46 Academy team put out a press release saying that Fanati had been suspended from the team with immediate effect for, and I quote, behaviours that are not um, against the, I think it's something like the team policies or something along those lines. It was in Italian, so the English is kind of broken, but whatever. You get the gist. Basically, he's had a bit of a barmy, um, a, bit, a bit of a barmy inside the uh, academy um, team, whatnot, what's been going on there. And it's not the first time Romano Fanati has been known to lose his cool. He's done it a few times in Moto3 where... I, don't, I think we talked about it. I mean, we talked about it on Bike Live when he switched off Nicky Io's bike in Argentina when he got into a Barney on the practice yeah, start grid. Um, the famous shot where he's turning like like a move of what I call to call sheer pettiness. He just he switch, he switches off Io's engine and rides off. Io can't get it started again, and he just gives Romani Fanati the, the the finger as he's riding past him. 
in, in glorious fashion. It's just hilarious. You know, we really should have... Because we had, we had Nicky Ayo on the show later that year after these miraculous Aston saves. And we forgot to ask him about that. We really should have done. But... Um, yeah, Fanati is known to be a bit petulant. He, I remember in Indianapolis last year where he was completely ragged on his team for not changing the rear tyre fast enough when it was a changeable conditions race, and which is kind of unfair given that you're never normally required to change the rear tyre of a bike that quickly um, because it's just kind of a freak. It was, like, it, was, it was like probably the first ever real moto-free flag-to-flag race. Um, so for that to be happening was very weird, but... King, um, given that Fanati is a premier title contender in Moto3 and has been for two or three seasons now, this is a shocker. <laughs> yeah, letting he was a title contender for so long and for him to just be, you know, dropped, especially this season with him being currently third in the championship. Yeah, third overall, and they have suspended him from the team. <laughs> like, this, this kind of, like, strangely reminds me of the way where you know uh a certain quarterback was in contention for you know the national collegiate championship for a couple of years and then he decided to go pro and essentially threw it all away with some ridiculous off the field antics if you don't know who i'm talking about now i'll let you know i'm talking about johnny manzel ah yes i had a feeling you'd be i had a feeling you'd mention johnny manzel that's actually makes a lot of sense like all the talents in the world but uh Maybe got maybe I think we wanted to be more of a celebrity a little bit too hard. I mean, for not like like Johnson, I know you wanted to throw this one as well a little bit, but Fanati I think has almost always come across like a bit of an egomaniac, and I've put it down as a fear. I have a theory of my own that I feel like he may have been intimidated by Nicolo Belega's excellent rookie season in Moto Three, um, but it's not a good look for Fanati going forward if he if he can't get his head together like this. Mm, I mean, this is. For me, what sticks out for me the most is this sort of punishment. Like, you don't get this sort of punishment for a bit of raised voices in the post-team, a post-race debrief or something like that. I don't want to be set too stereotypical here, but these are a bunch of Italians. They are known for well, having hot heads. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, literally, this is the sort of thing where, you know, somebody, somebody got punched in the debrief. This is the sort of thing we're talking about here i mean this is major this is really this is about as major as i've seen i mean this takes daniel kvyat's demotion to toro rosso to another level doesn't it yeah at least he's trying to ride for the rest of the season fanati's got nothing yeah it's, so, it's weird because we're not quite sure where this goes from here some are saying that he's been thrown out of the team altogether some are saying his moto 2 right i think mean, they have confirmed that he will not be going to moto 2 next season after all even though it looked like he had the speed-up bike confirmed for 2017 with the speed-up factory team going forward, but that apparently has now been revoked after this action. And some are even saying he will not ride for the team again this season, saying that Lorenzo Della Porta might be filling in for the rest of the year, which I got like is now Moto 3's like favorite rider for hire at this point. Uh, yeah, like, like to to me, this seems like he did something tremendously wrong. Or right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is, you don't suspend someone for the rest of the year and revoke the ride they were going to have next year for just a bit of a spat in the. the like, that's that's, that's expensive. Yeah. That, you're talking about one of your academy riders being in Moto Two next year, like Lorenzo Baldassari and Frankie Morbidelli are right now. You, you could have gotten a third guy in the Moto Two class right now. Like, that's costing them a ridiculous amount of money in terms of potential sponsor opportunities and whatnot by him not being with the team next year. Like, that's huge. 
So, look, it had to have been something absolutely massive. Maybe he punched an important crew member or something. Or maybe he said Jorge Lorenzo was better than Valentino Rossi. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but it's it's something... It's so, It has to be something completely massive. And it was a shocking story that a premier title contender and top-tier rider in the class has legitimately been suspended against their team's own best wishes. Um, because of something that happened, like, like again, for what, essentially what they called bad behaviour. I mean, goodness only knows what that bad behaviour actually was. I, I'd like to find out at some point just what had gone on. I, I mean, the team's never going to reveal it because, again, it's kind of in their best interest not to talk about these kind of things. But, I mean, boy, it's uh, a, sh- a shocking, shocking story to say the least. And uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about from from um, Austria before we move on and. And it's something that we've talked about a lot in Formula One side of things this year, and obviously in Moto Moto Two this year with with Luis Alonso's tragic passing. But King, I'm not sure the safety on this place is adequate. I mean, it's it, it made me a little. I mean, Marquez in free practice three made me very very nervous with that crash that he had. I mean, he popped his shoulder out. We did mention that with Marquez, by the way. He popped his shoulder out in free practice three. They popped it back in, um, but he almost completely pile-drivered um, Daniel Pedrosa into that wall and the runoffs on Austria are more built for Formula 1 than they are for bikes and that is a little bit concerning yeah because usually you know you notice this a lot with the MotoGP tracks where there's there's a lot of runoff in I would say the trajectory of a straight going into the corner especially the right. longer corners and in Austria, that basically does not exist into turns one, two, and three, and also nine. There is uh, a lack of runoff when you know you're going to be, it's going to be a very fast corner, at which, you know, after one, two, and three, after a very long straight. It's, 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 it's very concerning. And it's something that, that, that Scott Redding raised a flag regarding that before this race, saying it was kind of mental. There's a lack of runoff areas. And if you lose the front in turn two, basically you've absolutely had it. Because you're going through turn two at about 170 miles an hour. It's the it's the fastest track on the MotoGP. It's the fastest corner. And actually the fastest track overall on the MotoGP calendar now um, since Austria's been included. So it's something that's definitely worth picking up. And... I know James Toesland and um, Neil Hodson, who hosts be, uh, part of the hosts on BT Sports coverage, mentioned this on Friday with Craig Doyle. And I think they made very fair points. Like, this track has barely changed since they last ran bikes around here in the late 90s. And it's it, like, I think Toesland said the Armco barriers at like a turn one and at turn nine are exactly the same. Like, like, they, they are, like, they have not changed from the time he last reached when he was 15 years old, and that's going to what Toslin was saying. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's concerning, and that's the thing, and it, it just kind of speaks, I think, Johnson, to the, the challenges of, of making these bikes that, or just tracks, or track promoters in general, having to deal with trying to cater their track for multiple disciplines, because this is a problem, and, and, you know, I mean, if they could do it, they would. But the problem is, it's so expensive to do so. It's, 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 it, they'll look for any reason not to spend that kind of money. And like for the, for those kind of reasons, those kind of things are a last resort. I know Catalonia has been like that. They've been dealing with the possibility of changing the layout for three or four years now, and they finally did when Salon passed earlier this year. And in reaction to that, and you know, safety meetings and talk where that's concerned is an issue. But I mean. 
I remember our very first edition of Bike Live we did back in August of 2014 when we talked about Monza and Monza getting the Parabolica, getting the line of tarmac instead of the usual gravel. And, you know, F1 fans were absolutely seething with rage as a result of this move. Like, ah, how dare you? They're making the corner safer. It's taking the thrill out of Monza. You can't be doing this. Until they stopped and realized, oh, wait, this is for the bikes. This isn't for the... Oh, yeah, like to me, Monza is not that sacred of a place because it's the it's, it's the most no. lethal track on whoa, the F1 whoa, whoa, calendar. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like it's what the Ryan most. King has just done there is punch the sacred cow <laughs> of Formula One. King, you can't be doing this. <laughs> we disassociate ourselves immediately. Ryan King's comments do not represent the thoughts of the rest of Motorsport. No, no, they do not. They do. I mean, exclaimer. If no. if if Monza needs to make changes in terms of safety, they should, because there's only one other track on the F1 calendar that has ever had more fatalities than Monza, and that's the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Saying the which they sort of don't race that anymore, and they haven't done in the configuration that caused those fatalities for many yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like th- this is for the bikes, because. Monza was planning to have World Superbikes return here for this season, and that uh, that sadly never materialised because Monza just couldn't get itself safety-proof in time those World Superbikes, which was going to be coming up this month in September. Um, So that never actually happened, and, you know, World Superbikes has still been struggling for a replacement venue ever since, and they still haven't found one yet, which is kind of funny because the backup facility wasn't ready either um, (laughs) which is just the most dawner organization you'll ever see in your life but it just it just speaks to the the situation where tracks have to cater towards these multiple disciplines and it can cause problems and austria like that's a very small facility you know rebel don't want to spend that kind of money if they they can help it and making they can get away with it they will and Sam Lowe's crashing a couple of times at turn nine. Those were some nasty, nasty crashes. Um, so oof, it, it, it can very much happen where that, that can cause a lot of problems. So um, I hope that um, Austria does a little bit more to fix that going forward because, boy, like those like, turn one and two scared me for runoffs big time because it was very reminiscent of the same lack of runoff that tragically killed Louis Salom. Um, so, so yeah, that's uh, oof, one one that uh, was a little bit scary in the memory. That's about it for MotoGP right now. So let's let's move to, to NASCAR. Y- yeah, yeah. Sorry, what was that? What, 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 what? I didn't quite catch that. What, what did you just say? NASCAR, NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a month out from the release of NASCAR Heat Evolution, our quest to get drained to NASCAR is stepping up. <laughs> also helped by a really, really fucking insane race at Mid Ohio, as he's about to explain. I, I, I hate you all so much right now. That happy birthday, Dre. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss my Jamaican ass. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, I had insert nothing. joke about Laura Trot there. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um. Yeah, um, I may or may not have said during a quiet Sunday night, thinking there wasn't much going on with the Olympics, that I thought, oh, well, NASCAR's got the Infinity Series race if you want to kill a couple of hours. and then <laughs> They're racing at mid-Ohio, that IndyCar venue. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it could be good. And 
King basically thought, let's pop Dre's NASCAR cherry. This is the first, <laughs> like, this is a true fact, this is the first NASCAR race I've ever watched from start to finish. And, um... It was absolutely fucking insane. It's the only other way I can basically describe this race. And, yeah, as Johnson already alluded to, this happened at Mid-Ohio, where we just had an IndyCar race a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it was an NASCAR Xfinity Series. Um, Johnson, I think you're going to be carrying most of this segment anyway, because you're just catching up with it now. You see, they're basically still pretty fresh in your memory. But, my word, given the... It was given as practically storm conditions... In, in, in mid-Ohio for this one. I mean, what an absolutely ridiculous race. <laughs> I mean, this was something else, wasn't it? Like, I unfortunately missed this one uh, live because I was in... Uh, uh, I was still in Italy for it, but, I mean, just what a what a sensational race. Like, basically, for context, folks, this was one of the Xfinity Series' flyaway races. Normally, they're on the same tour as... Uh, the Sprint Cup series, but this was a flyaway race. There was not as many Sprint Cup cameos in this There was one. actually only one Sprint Cup cameo. Uh, yes, and who was that? Uh, Ryan Blaney. Yes, correct, yes, and he doesn't even feel like a Spring Cup cameo, does he? <laughs> yeah. I think by Spring Cup cameo, you mean Brad Keselowski, Kyle Busch, or indeed at Watkins Glen, Joey Logano. So, yeah. you had that, but, um, we are, you know, literally, this race at Mid-Ohio, quite a twisty track. It's been, you know, last year, it was the scene of Regan Smith bumping Alex Tagliani out of the way on the penultimate corner for the win. Um, so NASCAR here has always been a bit odd because not only is it a road course, obviously a little bit unusual in NASCAR terms, but it's a very twisty one. It's a very technical, fluid, you know, the other road courses NASCAR gone to, I guess it's more like Sonoma than Watkins Glen in cup terms. Yeah. But it's... basically what we had here was a race that started in the rain, <laughs> dried out, and then ended in rain that, for context, folks, Formula One wouldn't have gone green in. Yeah, it was basically like Malaysia monsoon levels. <laughs> and they finished the race under green in that. And, like, it, it bears repeating. Obviously, it's the most one of the most common jokes in the book relating to NASCAR, along with, huh, how hard is it to turn left for four hours? And they can't turn right. Uh, they don't race in the rain. <laughs> they, as soon as it starts raining, they cry. But, like, seriously, this was, like, King, as I said, like... Cars were sideways more... Like, this was the Ken Block show, effectively, with cars sideways out of every corner. Yeah, sideways out of every conditions. corner. Uh, I think the S's, there was a lot of problems with guys putting down the power yeah. too hard and losing it by themselves. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like, uh, even... even Because what, what was interesting about this race is that there was... Uh, in NASCAR road course racing history, there's been a great history of um, ringers you know road course specialists coming in and doing great things like in previous years you know ron fellows scott pruitt guys like that been great dan gurney had wins in nascar at the old riverside circuit in the 60s um but in recent years that's kind of fallen away in sprint cup because hey the regular drivers have got that good at road courses but it kind of came back to the fore and you had guys like andy lally for mario goslin's tiny xfinity (laughs) team that's normally running 31st or worse he yeah. was up in the top five for most of the day. And special shout out for me, I might be a bit biased, but hey, for Alon Day, Euro NASCAR's Israeli star, he's literally 23, I want to say, 23, 24 years old. And he ran a Dodge Challenger bodied car. Now, for context, the Dodge, Dodge pulled out of NASCAR in 2012. So that car is officially four years old. <laughs> he ran that car in the top five for most of the day and ended up finishing 13th. So obviously his experience in Europe with the Euro NASCAR, where they do race in the rain quite a bit on road courses, 
that paid off. But King, this was Justin Mark's day. And oh my God. Justin Marks has been a kind of bit player in, in Xfinity series. He's been a road course specialist and he's run several other series. He's run the Continental Tire Sports Car Championship before, but how good was it to finally see him get his moment? Oh, I... It was great to finally see him get his phone. I, I spent most of the race worrying that he wasn't going to win because <laughs> it like when, when you see a NASCAR road race and you see someone have a lead for like lead more than half of the laps, you don't yeah. expect that person to win. Well, I'll tell you what it reminded me of. It reminded me of Marcus Ambrose at Montreal in oh. <laughs> I want to say 2010, where he he led almost the entire race and then lost it off the final chicane to Carl Edwards. Yeah, <laughs> I was afraid it was going to be one of those moments. Yeah, I, I think we were all a little bit nervous about that. But Marks was driving the number 42, which is normally piloted by Sprint Cup's own Carl Larson. And, I mean, the race was incredible. And for me, King, what was really impressive is you put this race into context. Obviously, there was guys going off. There was guys spinning off. There was, you know, there was accidents. There was shunts. But for the most part, in cars that aren't be are barely designed to do road courses, let alone run in the rain, I mean, these are really heavy stock cars, very basic suspension, a lot of horsepower, rear-wheel drive, um, no driving aids whatsoever, very heavy steering, like, these are cars that are hard to drive around road courses anyway, let alone in the pouring rain. Yeah. But some of these guys who, you know, as stock car drivers, are not going to have any experience in rain racing. I think these guys overall, guys like Sam Hornish, who even in his IndyCar days probably didn't have much rain racing experience. Guys like him, Justin Allgaier, Ryan Blaney. Pretty good overall. You've got to say that the standard of driving wasn't was pretty good. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. Like obviously mm. there was uh, the usual turn one shenanigans you get in wet weather races every um, time. Like almost every <laughs> week, at least. But let's be honest, you get that in any series. Like to be <laughs> honest with you, I don't think there was that many more incidents than in your average Formula One or IndyCar rain race. And let's oh, be right. honest, those cars are far easier to drive in the rain. Yeah. And it's like the only instance uh, who ended up rear-ending a car after that long straight after the keyhole, <laughs> like uh, into into like the the long straight into turn four. I just remember some guy breaking. It might have been JJ Yaley into yeah, Daniel was, Suarez. Yeah, it was yeah. Yaley, it was it was Yaley into Suarez. Oh my god, that was like the only incident where I'm like. Wow, the like the standards were so low. That yeah, that was pretty that, poor. Besides that, like everything else was pretty fair. Uh, admittedly, sometimes, uh, admittedly, some parts of the race where the rain really started coming down, I thought maybe they would throw yellow because it looked like it was gonna pass over and you know go dry real soon if they just you know you know go behind the pace car for like just two laps and not you know completely red flag it. But besides that, like. The race is pretty, you know, well officiated on that end. Yeah, I mean, as I said, like, we're not joking, folks, especially yeah. in the final five laps, the rain intensified to the point that in the final two laps, they were driving in, like, certainly, Dre, and you would agree with this, you watch this, certainly, I'm not exaggerating here, rain that Formula One would not have gone green in. Like, we're talking Silverstone if, this if year. If this was F1, the race would have been red flagged and called a result. Without question, they, 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 they'd have thrown the red flag and they'd have called it because there's no way you can run in those conditions. It was, Except they did. It was, close to, it, was, it was close to Canada 2011 where they red flagged it halfway through and we had a one hour rain delay break. But uh, yeah. it, it, and, and what, was, what I loved about it as well was uh, it, it almost felt to me in those closing laps like it was NASCAR themselves going, yeah. 
Do you still want to say NASCAR can't run in the rain, bitches? <laughs> Come at me. Yeah. Formula One, eat this. I was watching that race, and I was just saying to myself, okay, what would it take for them to throw the red flag at NASCAR? I mean, seriously, it was... And, like, the, the only thing that brought out caution during the race, one, the first caution was because, obviously, it was a wet start and no one was on wet tires, and then every other caution after that, it was because of a beached car, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were legit cautions. Like, there was barely any... I think there was one debris caution. Yeah, there was one debris caution because uh, uh, there was some sheet metal on the racing line. Competition caution. Competition uh, caution. So they were... So they was were legit, me and Dre were arguing about, like, Dre, you can't drive <laughs> with, a, like, a legit jagged piece of metal on the racing line. No, I mean, uh, uh, trust me, I'm cynical about debris cautions, but that was about as legit as they're going to get. <laughs> yes, 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 As I say, and I think what was also interesting, um, uh, you know... King, you might agree with me with this. Like, once again, rain was the great leveler because in road course racing in NASCAR, as I say, it's got to a point now where the regular guys are decent enough at it with their top-level cup gear. They're normally better than a ringer. But in this case, the rain was the total leveler. And someone like Andy Lally, in equipment that normally finishes 30th or worse, was contending for the win for most of the race. He finished 7th. Alan Day, as I said, in a four-year-old car in his first ever Xfinity Series start, he finished his 13th and ran top five most of the day. Justin Marks had never led laps in the Xfinity Series or any NASCAR race up until that point. Led the most laps, won the race. Like, this was the ultimate leveler. And it was yeah, fascinating like, I think for me even seeing... Nelson P.K. Jr. was contending for a top five. Yes, yeah, he was in the number 98 car. And what was fascinating for me was... Like, what do you mean, even Nelson P.K. Jr.? What are you trying to say here, <laughs> Well, I'm just well, saying, you know. he, he's experienced at road courses and racing in the rain, not so much when it comes to stock cars. But what I think was fascinating as well was that how some of the regular guys, who, let's be real, are not very experienced on road courses altogether, and the stock car drivers would have barely ever seen the rain because obviously they're mostly oval drivers and you don't race on the rain in ovals ever. I think some of them acquitted themselves really well, guys like Blaney. I mean, let's be honest here. 90% of the field had at least one off. Yeah. But I defy anyone to not have offs in those sort of conditions. I mean, look at the British Grand Prix this year. There was one section of the track in turn one that was wet. Most of the field went off at that section. Turn one of poor judgment! <laughs> exactly. At mid-Ohio, it was the entire track of very poor judgment. Yes. But, um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, as I said, mid-Ohio is a very technical track, very twisty, lots of elevation changes, undulating. This is not like... I don't know, Watkins Glen or Montreal, where they previously raced in the rain there in NASCAR. Like, this is a very twisty track, and you're... Basically, you could hear the guys. They were like... <laughs> like, the, normally you hear like... Like, on the throttle, it was... You see them through the, the windshield working their hands on that Oh, wheel. my God. Like, literally every single corner, <laughs> as soon as they touch the throttle, 45 degrees sideways. Like, Ken Block must have been watching it at home going... Holy shit, i got to get me some of this. This is amazing. <laughs> Fuck Global Rallycross. <laughs> Jim Car- I mean, it was literally Jim Carner with 40 or 36 stock cars. It was yeah, amazing like to watch. 700 and- horsepower. Yes, that's the thing. As I say, stock cars are barely designed to go around road courses, let alone in the rain. They are probably the worst designed cars for rain racing, and yet these guys were, for the most part, making it work, and it was really entertaining. And again, rain's the ultimate leveler. Yep, and... Shout out to Daniel Suarez and Sam Hornish Jr. for having about 117 accidents between them. <laughs> and Hornish still finished second. Hornish How the hell? Still second. And do you know what's incredible? Hornish considered himself retired from racing at the at the start of this season and has been working as a supply teacher. What? 
Yeah, and like so ever just s- in marks. Uh, yeah, after this result, after this result, Sam Orange Jr. says like he's working to get at least a part-time Xfinity ride next year. Because he still got it. Like people <laughs> just thought he had like because what happened effectively for those that don't know, I'm well aware. The only NASCAR we ever talk on the show is me making the odd in joke and then Dre slapping me down. Yeah. Um, Sam Hornish, obviously a superstar of IndyCar in the mid 2000s, yep. went to NASCAR, didn't wasn't quite so good. He went to Xfinity for Roger Penske, was pretty good. Moved back to Cup last year for Richard Petty and was atrocious. Let's be honest here, he was dreadful. And then literally at the start of this year had no ride. And I read an article literally three months ago that said, do you know what? I'm doing some supply teacher work at my son's school. I'm effectively retired from racing. I'm happy with that. And yet he comes out here, drives one of Childress's cars in this race, finishes second despite falling off, as Dre said, about 20 million times. It was This was almost like an F1 2015 online race, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Just unbelievable. What a great spectacle. But the, I, what I liked about it most, guys, is the fact that, yeah, there were incidents, but it wasn't a pure demolition derby. It wasn't like, ha, NASCAR can't race in the rain. Look at this race. It's chaos and it's derpy. Mostly, it was genuinely a really great race. I mean, these guys were going three wide yeah, making three passes. Three wide since they were spending like entire sectors side by side. Yeah, this was incredible stuff. This was genuinely really good driving from these guys. You've got to give them props. I was very impressed. I mean, again, I said it was my first time and... It, I, I was incredibly impressed in what I just in what, in what I saw in my first NASCAR race. I mean, I, 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 people like seem to think that I don't like NASCAR, and it's not that I don't like NASCAR. I just don't have time to get into it. And I've always had phenomenal respect for what they do and, and their ability, and the fact that it's so unique compared to other forms of motorsport and, and the challenges involved and what you've got to do. And I didn't realize that, that Mid Ohio was in the middle of basically a thunderstorm. And despite that, they are driving these ridiculously blocky 750 horsepower cars, drifting hot through half a dozen corners on this lap, and nursing cars over what was in what was monsoon condition. So for me, I tip my hat to the entire field for not making a complete horlicks of it. Um, I, again, I said I was just I was I was very very impressed. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, to me, I, my final kind of word on it is that it kind of reminded me in terms of a race of, and for British Touring Cars fans, this is hallowed ground. It reminded me a little bit of the classic British Touring Car race from Donington 1998, where the heavens opened, guys are falling, like experienced veterans are falling off all over the place. And Nigel Mansell, the Formula One cameo in the, in the series, is up there challenging yes. for the win with guys yes. like Anthony Reid and John Cleland. Like, it's probably, it's voted as like the greatest single British touring car race of all time. It kind of reminded me of that. You had wildcard guys, guys who aren't regulars in the series, being the stars, the regulars having problems, but kind of fighting through adversity. Brutal rain conditions, spectacular driving, instance all over the place. It was it was marvelous for all the right reasons. It was good stuff. Yeah, it was it was a great time. Oh man, I mean, uh, just just part of me is like, well, there's there's no F1 or MotoGP this weekend. There there is IndyCar, and there's also my personal favorite race of the NASCAR calendar, the night race at Bristol. Oh yeah, oh that's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very much so. I'll tell you what, Dre. Uh, it's quite funny. You know, I said earlier about the friend of mine who's been trying to get me into or has been explaining the rules of track cycling to me, and I've related it back to NASCAR. Yes, yes, you have. I actually train. related the velodrome to NASCAR at Bristol, and I showed her a clip, and she was like, yeah, that's basically the same, except with twice as many wheels. And I was like, 
well, you know where NASCAR's actually going this weekend, don't you? So, <laughs> yeah. mate, if you want your first Sprint Cup race, Bristol is a pretty good one. Fine, fine, <laughs> fine. Like, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, it's, it's, I am it's, off on Sunday. I will watch this bloody Sprint Cup race. Fine. You realize what's happened now? It's the thin end of a wedge. <laughs> the wedge which I will beat you to death with, Johnson. Like, <laughs> they ain't, they ain't no nah, you've been threatening me about that all year. You ain't, you ain't be, like 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 you ain't even been here for three weeks and you're trying to goad me into watching more NASCAR. Yeah, oh, well you know, I'll be chilling with. Um, no, I'm not going to finish that sentence. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you're about to say. I will shoot you down in flames. Oh, let's be honest. I, I'm being confident enough trying to get you to watch NASCAR, let alone. Her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, the restraining order is in the mail. Don't you worry. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jason. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let's move on to the news. And oh my gosh, um, main news story here is kind of a, an underrated little caveat of Formula One. It's the Belgian Grand Prix. By the way, sorry. Before you get into it, like Sake. I was expecting being away in Italy for a week to because the thing is with Formula One, what normally happens is you don't miss any on-track action. No, 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 no. You miss a ton of off-track shenanigans and silly season stuff. So I was expecting to get back. And when the other two, before the, uh, before the show, I was like, what silly season stuff did I miss? Eh, not that much. Okay, not, except not, for this. Not really. Like, the only thing we, really, we only really talked about, I mean, we did talk about Formula One silly season at length on last week's show, but it was, it was mostly to do with kind of half-truths and half-stories that were going around here and there. Like, Raggaretto saying random, was like, oh, we need a charismatic driver to lead the team, and yet they were linked to a Valtteri Bottas. Um, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a weird one, that. And, you know, talking about little things like Carlos Sainz, where he, where could he go? And the big, the, I mean, the main local point was Claire Williams, basically. She, she basically made it public that, yeah, they made no, no bones. They were trying to chase off the Jens, Jensen button. They wanted button for next year. And where you know where that could go from there basically so it, it wasn't a massive deal but talking about silly season for a minute it looks like Felipe Nazza might be in trouble going forward here King because it seems that his his main sponsor Bank of the Brazil Brazil's National Bank is not sponsoring Salva for next season oh I, I think you may have misunderstood me when I oh, said right. Bank of the do, do Brazil is are not sponsoring Sauber next year. They still are sponsoring Felipe Nasser. Nasser's looking for seats elsewhere. Oh, I see. So they're still going to sponsor the team? No, no, no. They're, they're sponsoring him oh, to right. whatever team he goes to. It's just been confirmed that they are not sponsoring Sauber next year, so Nasser will not be staying at Sauber. Yeah, because like pretty much all of Nasser's money comes from the Bank of the Brazil, Brazil's National yeah. Bank sponsor him so yeah Nasa most likely will not be in Formula 1 next year um, which is a shame no no, no no oh unless well, he, he could still be in F1 but in other words yeah. he, he, I don't think we have to hire him basically yeah because uh, apparently uh, it's been confirmed from like various sources in Brazil that he's in talks with Haas F1 ooh well, okay the north the north slash South American connection there yeah uh, that makes sense. I mean, I wonder if he would bring more money to the table than, than uh, Esteban Gutierrez currently does, or maybe Grosjean even, because we, we forgot this last week that Grosjean's only signed a one-year deal yeah. with Haas going forward. So, again, if, if Grosjean's not happy with the team is, he could very well depart as a free agent at the end of the year. Um, 
interesting to say the least. And you know, Nasa has not been amazing since he de- debuted in Formula One last year, but I think he's been pretty solid um, as like a middle of the road kind of guy. I mean, he he did have a couple of really good performances for Sauber last season. This this year, the car's been absolutely atrocious. Yeah. Um, which you know, even if even if he, he has been good, we're never going to know about it because Sauber's just been so bad this year. Um, the problem is, how good is it possible for someone to be, and how how good is it possible for someone to look when they're effectively in the worst car on the grid? Like we've been speaking a lot of the year, how Manor have effectively partially leapfrogged Sauber. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a bit like saying, it's a bit like when we were talking about drivers last year at Manor, it's kind of hard to shine when you're in the worst equipment. But I, I guess at the same time, we were still able to work out that, you know, maybe Will Stevens wasn't quite cutting it. I don't know, but it's kind of tricky on this one. It, it is a tricky one. And like, if you're NASA, where could you really go right now? And why would a team take you over someone else like a Kevin Magnussen or a or a Carlos Sainz, or, you know, someone in that kind of second-tier ballpark. Oh, I, I assume money. Like, that. that's mainly... Like, <laughs> as I said, Nazareth's a solid driver with a bank account, so it's like, it's not like you're settling for someone. Well, and, question, though, isn't the whole reason he be, might be losing the Sauber ride because of Banco de Brazil? Oh, out? while the moment you're away, we expl- I explained to Dre that... He wasn't losing the sponsorship. Sauber was losing the sponsorship, effectively confirming that he was leaving the team, possibly uh, taking a sponsorship elsewhere. Right, okay, that makes more sense. Sorry, my initial reading of the article was that it was kind of like Maldonado losing his ride in F1. His main sponsor was pulling out and not backing him anymore. No. But if his sponsor's staying with him, yeah. that changes things. Yeah, so I mean, we're okay. in this awkward situation where he's... He has funding, he's looking for a ride, he's in talks with Haas, and uh, he could possibly go to another team if they're looking, obviously. And it's. I was about to say, surely there's no way in at Haas, but then again, Esteban Gutierrez has not been pulling up trees, has he? No. And it's still all right, Gutierrez, but he's done everything but score points in that team. <laughs> yeah, which is, you can tell for someone like Gene Haas that's not going to be good enough yeah at Haas money isn't really an issue yes they're sponsored they they're sponsored by a uh, Telcel which is you know one of Gutierrez's sponsors but it's not like money is an issue mm-hmm very true so that's going to be interesting to see where that where that where that's going forward and uh waiting to see how that, how that, how that switches out I mean NASA probably is good enough to be in Formula One just Please, nobody else called him Fred again. I was like, I will choke David Croft into an inch of his life. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Croft, if you're listening, stop that. It's yes. not funny. Yeah, the, and yeah just, Dave, we know you're a big fan of the podcast. And, and just so you know, Felipe's English for Philip. Like, does, does, Ted, does, does David Croft know this? <laughs> so, if anything, it should be Phil Nazar. <laughs> yeah. Even, even is then, it, it wouldn't be funny. It's it, like it's just it's just like polishing a turd at this point. Like seriously, <laughs> stop calling him Fred. It's it's it, it was never funny to begin with. It's not my fault. You're too lazy. Where the hell did that even come from? <laughs> oh, because yeah, he this this came from because David Croft could couldn't you know properly pronunciate Nazar and make it sound different enough from Masa, which I was like, how's that a thing? <laughs> Mm-hmm. How dumb does he think Formula One fans actually don't answer that? 
yeah, like we have we have plenty of marginalised proof of that, quite frankly. Speaking of which, Belgian Grand Prix tickets, and <laughs> good news where that's good news where that's concerned going forward, as it seems they have sold twenty five percent more tickets than the previous year. All the yep. grandstand seats for Spa Francorchamps next weekend have sold out. Only general admission seats are available for the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend and the promoters say it's down to a certain someone who is that certain someone mr king well um can i just speculate could it be uh, <laughs> i don't know rio harianto oh no uh, esteban ocon no no local uh, boy hour away max Verstappen. Uh, really yeah yeah saint jesus christ Verstappen himself <laughs> yep wow boy's got a race that. win in a top team they want to see if you can actually get a win, so... What, you mean another win? You've <laughs> 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 oh, got an actual win at a top, a, a top team. Do we want a, 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 an actual win now? There's not really much discussion that's worth having at this point. I mean, I can't say I'm surprised at the Dutch-Belgian progeny, given that Verstappen was born, like, an hour away from Spa. You know, the Belgians have, have got behind him in force to, you know, to, to cheer on their hybrid boy i suppose in in, in in this case and you know he's he sold the fifth tickets because let's be again the verstappen hype train is very much real but i wanted to move on real quick and talk about this one as well because we haven't really mentioned you didn't mention this last week and we, we kind of forgot to put it on the running list until now but esteban ocon is is gonna make his formula one debut at spa as well replacing rio harianta who sadly we did confirm was out of money in the end. He was very candid about it on Twitter, talking about how he said, you know, I'm out of funds. I hope something else comes around in the future. But Harry Anto is out, and uh, King, you get to whack some lyrical about your boy, Esteban Ocon. He's now with the Manor team alongside Pascal Verlein. Yeah, he, he finally gets to leave his struggles in DTM and come to the promised land of Formula One. <laughs> The, the promised land, yeah, he, he, had, he was not great in DTM, oh boy, uh, he was no Pascal Verlein when that's concerned, but uh, glad Esteban's been given a full opportunity here with Mana going forward, it's a, it's a dream team, I mean it really is with Ocon and, and Verlein, it's like the internet's wet dream of drivers, like, <laughs> Mana is, is now basically a Mercedes B team at this point now, because both their junior drivers are now in the Mana unit on Mercedes power. I mean, like, the master plan is now complete. Yeah, um, and, and Renault are definitely taking notice that, they, that they're looking at how well Ocon performs and seeing whether or not they could, you know, steal him away from Manor and, you know, Mercedes to, to get him in, a seat, in one of their seats for next year. Yeah, and, uh, boy... I mean, Renault, Renault, uh, Renault, uh, apparently keen to move on from Palmer and maybe Magnussen too. So that's going to be one to keep a close eye on. But uh, delighted to see Ocon is going to be making his debut um, next time around. The spies are very, very talented, get rated very highly indeed. And I did find it a little bit funny. Somebody asked me, Dre, is like, is this new? Is this the new best young driver lineup in the paddock? To which my response was. It's not even the best lineup we've seen this season, <laughs> but even so, it's, it's it was it was kind of funny seeing that become a thing. But yeah, I'm, I like I I know there is a big hype train for Esteban Ocon, and you know he's been very impressive. I mean, he beat Verstappen in Formula Three last season, and and you know people rate him very very highly indeed. So I'm very curious to see how that one turns out in relation to Verlaine, who's got a what I'd say what 10, 11 more starts more than him going forward. So. Yeah, that's going to be intriguing to see how that turns out. Well, one thing 
I also found interesting about the situation with Okan and Reno is I think it broke like literally right after we recorded last week that uh, it, it's been pretty they've publicly announced that they've been struggling to recruit staff to ex- to expand their staff at Endstone. They're actually struggling to recruit engineers to, you know, become a truly full factory outfit and have, you know, a full working staff to make a run at producing a good car. And right now they're around 500 engineers and they want to get 90 more by the end of the year. And a lot of the current engineers are going to... Are openly saying that might not be possible so the omens basically aren't very good yeah uh apparently uh, a lot of the engineers saying that potential engineers don't feel comfortable working at reno they don't feel like they don't feel like reno's fully and wholly committed to formula one and are you know as are as likely to be as successful as they hoped they would. That's not very good. <laughs> um, if like, like, it's weird because like Renault are a team that never really goes away. They're a team that even despite no matter how much struggle they seem to go through, they always do eventually find the way to get back to the top. But uh, here's the but... thing. Uh, Renault has quit Formula One two times before. <laughs> That's also true. That <laughs> That's very true. Might be a problem. <laughs> and uh, can I just point out, uh, the guy heading up uh, a lot of their motorsport, uh, the Renault group, I should say, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but this was the same guy who was involved in the Nissan Le Mans project last year. He committed it, Nissan to run... Yes, yes, Carlos Gosin. That's the guy. Um, he committed... Uh, Nissan to a three-year project in LMP1. That was, of course, with their experimental front-wheel drive, front-engine prototype, which I still... It kind of ranks very highly up there in the sort of... I don't don't know if you guys have this, in the sort of... It was a mess, it never worked, but I still kind of loved it because it tried. Yeah, the the failed dream. The failed dream category. I still have the diecast sat on the shelves of my cabinet. Like, it's just... Oh, I, I wish it had worked. But anyway, point is... That was a three-year project when it came in with a trailer at the Super Bowl. Um, Within 12 months, Mm -hmm. the staff involved in that project were getting their P45s four days before Christmas. So Carlos Gussin, basically, at the head of the Renault-Nissan, I don't know if you call it alliance company, basically he's involved in that sort of thing. Basically, they're not afraid to pull the plug on a motorsport program that isn't performing early. Yes. So... Basically, I, I get the feeling the pressure might be on to turn this thing around and yeah. quick. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I Hopefully things have changed because the Renault, Renault employees tend to be quite passionate when it comes to Formula One because I still remember the story from, from the late 70s, early 80s when, you know, uh, Alan Prost left the team and they lit his Mercedes-Benz on fire. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag fire emoji, quite literally. <laughs> and it got so bad that Alan Prost had to move from France to Switzerland, but yeah. As you do. But, uh, right, 
let's talk about one other major discussion point going forward. This is one that Johnson wanted to bring up because he's had one of those one, he's had one of those little, little epiphany moments when he wasn't thinking about Laura Trot for two minutes. Um, I've no idea what you're talking about. Of course you don't. Um, but it was one of those interesting things that was worth talking about, and that was kind of the perception of motorsport in general. And now I, you may have seen or may not have seen. I did a Dre brief talking about this this past week, talking about the comparisons between the Formula One landscape at Mid Ohio and the one coming off the German Grand Prix it was the same day. I called it a tale of two races because the reaction was just so different. Um, Germany was a race that was that like all like all the. The, the tension and the bad feeling F1 kind of all just rose to the surface during that Grand Prix as Rosberg got a bullshit penalty and you know Hamilton won the race on turn one effectively and you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a good Im- impression to watch it, it I mean it just summed up like everything that's currently wrong with Formula 1 right now it was really. like the opposite of a greatest hits for Formula 1 exactly it was just like this is everything that's wrong in Formula 1 in one neatly condensed 90 minute package and then you cut to IndyCar in Mid-Ohio, which was just balls to the wall crazy in its second half, and it was just so awesome in that regard. And it, and it was kind of what many Formula 1 fans would die for to get into IndyCar, essentially. And the perception of motorsport is an interesting thing, and I'm going to read out Johnson's proposal for this show that was in my DM, in our group DM conversation. Um... Uh, I think it was it was a couple of days ago actually, and he said, and I quote, "I have a potential discussion topic. You can either do this as a dre brief, but I'd like to chat about it on the show. Does F1 and motorsport in general have an image problem? Are we questions of getting young fans into the sport, engaging new audiences, the old suits, image dynamic in the fan base, media, and organizations, etc. It's something we've talked about before, and I think it would be something interesting to talk about now." Um. I agreed. I think it's something that's, especially now, and given everyone's in its summer break and probably in its most negative place from fan enjoyment for quite some time um, going forward. I mean, Johnson, you can get the ball rolling. This was your suggestion. I mean, how do you feel right now about the state of Formula One in terms of how it looks to a greater audience? Well, to me, what really got me thinking about this was uh, basically uh, in recent weeks, I've been hanging out with. Uh, or I've been, you know, involved a lot in the community called Nerd Fighters. Now, I'll explain this to you. These are people who are kind of fans of uh, the popular author John Green, his brother Hank, who's involved heavily in the YouTube scene. He's the organizer of VidCon. Of course, John Green, also a sponsor of AFC Woman in My Club, blah, 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 blah. Basically, Nerd Fighters are sort of his fans, sort of followers. They are proud nerds. And what I've kind of relished and enjoyed being around them is that. I've kind of liked how, you know, it's kind of like what Simon Pegg said years ago about being a nerd in that it's being about not being ashamed of expressing how much you love something, you know, be it a TV show, films, you know, being geeky about something, uh, etc. And it kind of got me thinking on this kind of train of thought. Uh, you know, because for a lot of these people, they have like fandoms, you know, there's like Doctor Who, Star Wars, you know, whatever it is, film series, whatever, you know, Marvel films, whatever it is. And it, it kind of got me thinking back around to motorsport, because obviously I'd mentioned I was big into motorsport and uh, big into, you know, NASCAR and Formula One and whatever. And it just kind of got me thinking. I don't know if you guys ever get this, this kind of random train of thought where you kind of go off on a tangent. It's a bit like sometimes if you're browsing the Internet. Just random points. You, end, you you sort of half an hour later, you go, how did I end up on this site? Anyway, 
completely out of context. I'm just going to leave that sitting there. Anyway, but... Uh, well, new. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, but basically, my thought on it is this. Um, every so often, you'll get articles, uh, and I saw one recently, I think it was on Jalopnik, uh, about NASCAR and its problems with attracting a younger audience. Its audience is mostly older generation, uh, things like that. <clears throat> and... You know, Formula One seemingly has similar issues. That's why we keep getting discussions of, oh, we need we need gimmicks. We need uh, qualifying races. We need reverse grids. We need this. We need that. You know, we need short attention span stuff because we're not attracting the younger audience. For me, I think the problem runs deeper. And I don't know. I wanted to throw this out there because I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts. And I wanted to hear our listeners' thoughts. I really wanted to start a discussion on this. For me, I think the bigger issue of motorsport is that, and this sounds tacky in itself, it's not cool. And by that, I mean, it's not, it doesn't feel relevant and like something that people need to tune into. Because if you look at how people love Doctor Who or their film, favorite film franchise or the TV show, it's literally a case of as soon as the show ends one week, it's like, oh shit, I've got to tune in next week to see what happens next. And you've got to look at how they relate to that and how they love that. Mostly it's for very human stories. It's for characters. It's for drama. It's for plot developments. It's for things like that. Well, if you think about it, motorsports should have that. You yeah, know, we talk I, about this is, in Formula One. Go like on. with, when you brought it up, the thing that struck me most was because, you know, it's uh, it's obviously going on right now, the Olympic Games, and how, yes, the, exactly. Olymp how the Olympics can make anyone care about sport. They can they watch sports that they don't normally watch. They care about athletes they don't normally care about. And it, to me, it's the idea of, inclusiveness and how f1 is the complete antithesis of that mm. is more about exclusiveness yeah. and people always bring up oh f1 or motorsport in general should be a part of the olympic games and part of me is like no because f1 fundamentally goes against the olympic charter and not like in the whole like oh they drive cars sort of sense they in the Olympic Charter they list the fundamental principles of Olympic of Olympism, and number four, the practice of sport is a human right. Every individual must have the possibility of practicing sport without discrimination of any kind in the Olympic spirit, which requires mutual understanding, uh, yep. with a spirit of friend friendship, solidarity, and fair play. That to me, F one is like not that at all it's not about solidarity fair play or like friendship or like inclusiveness of any kind yeah exactly and and for me um <clears throat> you know what it kind of sums up and this is something all three of us have talked about before mm -hmm. we've experienced this from a media perspective because we are you know in our own respective ways tangentially involved in media i personally have worked as an accredited journalist and broadcaster at, at motorsport events you know, not Formula One level, but motorsport in general. Uh, we've seen this from a fan perspective, and we've seen this witnessing the sport in general in terms of leadership. This, For me, this goes beyond Formula One. For me, it feels like there's a general sense of not really being in touch with what young fans actually want. And, and, and people think it's a very easy fix to go, well, young fans, they've got so much to pay attention to. They can't pay attention for 90 minutes. We've got to shorten things down. We've got to make things more exciting, more dramatic, more gimmicky, more blah, 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 blah. But you have the human stories right there. Why are you not capitalizing on that? Like, here's a good way of putting it. From next year, Formula E may well be supported by a series called Robo Race, which is autonomous racing. 
And my big flaw with that is, isn't what people pay attention to the human story? But people are going, no, 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 you'll pay attention to the engineers programming the algorithms. No, I don't think so. Impressive technical achievement, yeah. But what is it about Formula One that people... Because obviously, listeners of this show are generally young fans. So what is it they pay attention to? It's the Lewis Hamilton dynamic. It's his rivalry with Nico Rosberg. It's Sebastian Vettel. Can Ferrari overhaul them? The 18-year-old Max Verstappen. Wow, he's a young guy, but he's already winning in Formula One. It's Daniel Ricciardo, this hugely popular babyface. It's the, the struggles of Sauber. Haas coming up the grid. Manor making their way up. You know, those midfield battles. It's the human there's drama. Story, it's stories, the human aspect. There are stories that have been there this year, that's for sure. Yeah, but I just feel like the sport as a whole isn't communicating them very well because I don't even know how to put it. There just appears to be this disconnect between the outside world and the fans that the sport could be reaching I, I from the people involved in it. It's I, like, I, it's I, like I, It feels like something within the culture of f1 where mm. where while the drivers and like for me i'm kind of going beyond formula one as well yeah, just the general culture yeah, of motorsport yeah, it's like while the drivers and the team generally do like the fans it seems like when it comes to the sport and the press and the media it seems like there's this massive divide in, yeah it's like very much and as i say we've worked in media uh you know to to various degrees there does feel like when you're in the media room and, and when you're in the media world you're in your world and you can see everything that's going on and yet that just doesn't seem to tally and sometimes you sort of go well what are the fans talking about they don't know what they're talking about they don't see what we do and it's like well hang on there's your problem they're not you seeing know, what you do you know, are I you think, not communicating that yeah i'm sorry i've kind of not really spoken out on this very much since we started but if like if there's one thing this like because i'll bring up an example to, to eventually round up to my point here there was a massive debate um, in America regarding Michael Phelps and who could be the greatest Olympian of all time between Michael Phelps and Usain Bolt. Ooh. And and Bomani Jones, one of my favorite journalists out there, made a very key point on, a, on Sports Center and on his own podcast, The Right Time, which I highly recommend if you haven't already, where he talked about the inaccessibility of swimming on a ground level. And that's exactly, what, and that's why he felt that Bolt was was such a mega star because anybody can become a track star and run. Anybody can Absolutely. run really fast. There's no such thing as an undiscovered track star in swimming. As much as sure on the face of it, it sounds like anybody could be a swimming star. That's not the case. Not everybody's got access to a pool. Not everybody has got access to those kinds of things. And in American history, in the past. If you were black, you had no chance. Like you, yeah. you had to yeah, community public. And to be honest, Ray, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because my yeah. analogy was going to be to football. Because yes. the thing is, there's I'm absolutely convinced that the reason football is the most popular sport on the planet is that anyone can do it. Yes. If you've got a space in your garden and a ball, yes. you can play a variation of football. That's how easy it is. And then you contrast that to motorsport. At the ground level, motorsport is difficult to get into because you need to own a car, not cheap in itself. You need to kit it out for racing, again, not cheap. Yep. You need to do go through in amounts of licenses, it's, officiating, uh, entry yeah. fees. It's an incredibly closed shop just to start with. Exactly. And then we make it even more closed from there on in. Yeah. I mean, like, go on, go on, yeah, like, like, to me, the FIA should emphasize or at least try to make it a, try to make the, the gap between racing video games and 
actual racing as as small as possible by making actual racing more accessible. Like maybe yes. actually tightening up the karting regulation so basically it's almost a spec series to try to drive down the price of karting as low as possible and try to work with uh, video game developers to to actually make the games not not you know go the whole stereotypical full simulation but you know make games in a way that you're actually learning skills and tools that'll be valuable if you decide to make the transition to actual well you racing. know you know you you mentioned that that's why i've been such a supporter of the gran turismo academy program because for me look at how that blew down the barriers yeah. you know, for years people were like people in motorsport were like video games aren't like motorsport at all that's ridiculous Gran Turismo and Nissan went, and Darren Cox, they went, actually, let's put that to the test. And they literally took guys like Jan Marderborough. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Jan Marderborough before. Mm -hmm. Really lovely, humble individual. This was a guy who was like us yes. not long ago. He was a Gran Turismo player. He was a game player. Probably wasn't sure what he was doing with his life. They put him in a scenario where they went, okay, let's take everything else aside. Let's ignore the fact that you probably couldn't afford a racing career. Let's just take your Gran Turismo talent and let's put you in a race car and see what you can do. He passed the test and now look at him. He's an he's a endurance race winner around the world. He's run at Le Mans. He's run at Nürburgring. He's run at these major sports events. What a way of breaking down the barriers. That's why I've been such a praiser of that program. That kind of blew down, blew open the doors, really, yeah. in its own small way. It's a little bit of a personal story here to add to this discussion. And... My own family is not necessarily taking this podcast and never of mine particularly seriously. And one of the main reasons I tell them I was so motivated to start this up was because I've been a Formula One fan since 1999, and I've taken it a lot more seriously since 2011, I want to say. Hmm. And in that time, like from a pure media standpoint, an industry that I want to get into... It's the same names you see on TV every single time. Damon Hill, Johnny Herbert, you know, Lee McKenzie, Eddie Jordan, David Coulthard, you know, all either former drivers or, you know, guys. That, I mean, like, Damon Hill's been involved in F1 media for bloody 20-odd years now. Like, even yep. when he, like, as soon as he retired, he was pretty much in the commentary booth part-time and then eventually as part of Sky, Sky F1's team full-time. You know, Martin Brundle, again, is probably now more relevant as a broadcaster now, probably the number one most respected F1 broadcaster and journalist out there now, more so than his actual racing career. That's what he mean Brundle was the first guy to admit that at Autosport. I remember talking to a couple of guys that interviewed him down there um, um, at the Autosport show last year. They were saying that Brundle, even, even Brundle himself admits his broadcasting career was probably a greater legacy for him now than his actual racing career as he was trying yeah. to sell his racing career book, which was quite ironic. Um, but I, I said it before, like, I'm, the reason I mentioned Bolton Phelps was because the accessibility, and as Johnson mentioned earlier, motorsport is one of the most inaccessible sports in the world. It's, you need... It's such a close shop. Yeah, you need a god-given gift to even to consider it that kind of thing, and even then, that might not be enough unless you've got literally millions and millions of pounds of sponsor money to climb the ladder. I mean, I remember there was a pitch on Dragon's Den a few years ago about a talented kid racer that was trying to negotiate a deal with the Dragons where he could get 
where like, where like he was looking for like 150 grand so he could race I think in Formula Ford or something like that and then the in exchange for 20% of his future winnings in prize money down the road so and the, he, like the, his, the guy's dad was on there saying oh we need like 2.5 mil to get into GP2 yeah. Two and a half million pounds. Yeah. And I know for, like, my granddad's worked in motorsport before and he knows Lewis Hamilton got a lot of favours to get into Formula One. A lot of a, yeah. lot, of, a lot of bills were written off, let's put it that way. And, and he, I can tell you as well, yeah. it, it, it almost feels that way on a lot of levels. Like, uh, for us in media, like, for myself as a broadcaster and a commentator, it feels to me like you kind of have to um, fit a certain style, know certain people be prepared to curry favor with certain people and that kind of runs counter to be you know everyone's like i'll oh, be yourself be true to yourself that kind of runs counter to all of that and as fans i kind of feel there's this distance there's a lot you're expected to put up with well as a fan well how you know can I mean? you relate to a sport where the average person hasn't got a few million to throw at it <laughs> exactly how can the average person relate to that like football you can can't. relate to because as i say there's always that dream that if you can kick a football round you could maybe one day play in the Premier League or play in the World Cup. Do you know what I mean? Sure. But let's put it to you this way, right? Let's put it to you this way. Lewis Hamilton was like the most authentic Formula One I got into it story we've had maybe since maybe in, maybe since I became a fan. Like when he debuted in 2007. And like I read his book, My Story. I still got it. It's, it's, it's growing dust in the corner of my bedroom shelf. But it's a situation where... He talked like Lewis talks very proudly about the fact that his dad worked three jobs to keep his dream alive when he was cut and he was still in karting. Anthony Hamilton was working three jobs at yeah. a time to, to to keep that dream alive. And like Lewis actually seemed to have forgotten that, ironically speaking. He was talking about, oh, you know, I I you know, like Ross Braun supporting my career and all that shit. And, you know, like he had this god given gift. But no, 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 no. His dad worked his tail off working seventy hour weeks to try and keep Lewis Hamilton's car and dream up. That was something people could legitimately relate to. Because I know many, many parents out there that have fought tooth and nail for their kids' dreams. And that is something that I thought, yes, I think that's one of the reasons why I started cheering for Hamilton back in 2007, because he seemed relatable. That was, like, and as, as Johnson absolutely said, it's, those, it's, it's, the, it's the issue of human, I think it's, it's that human tendency that we are drawn into as sports fans. I mean, King will relate to this. How many Olympic swimmers got profile vids before the Olympics actually started or around the time of the Olympics? Because we don't know these people normally because swimming is kind of in a cut-off existence compared to the rest of the world. How many people knew who Katie Ledecky was before these Olympic Games started? Like, I know I didn't. It's like, so, um, it's like the only people who knew know Katie Ledecky were either... Watch the U.S. Olympic trials. Watch swimming regularly, or remember her from the London Games. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's one of those situations where, for me, in a sport where the technology and you know the the, the advancements of said tech are what ultimately will you know drives this sport forward. We will all, as Johnson Crack said about a month ago, and this this phrase still rings with me, and I've used it in Dre briefs since then. We will always care most about the squishy bit behind the wheel, and 
It's an image. That's why for me, sorry, Drake, that's why for me, that's going to be the big flaw that autonomous racing will have to overcome. Agreed. And for, for, like, it was great from a techno game standpoint back in 2001, but not so much now in something that's trying to take itself seriously as an actual sport. If anyone got that techno game reference, by the way, plus one to you, sir. But it's one of those situations where it's... Formula One is never going to be that accessible. It, it, it's, it's just on a completely different platform. And as me growing up in a working class family, you know, as a son of a Jamaican immigrant, it's, it's, it's something that you're never going to be able to relate to because we're talking about kids that have got million pound sponsors from the time they're yeah. 15, 16, 17 years old. It's a level of inheritance and it's a level of of distribution money circumstances that for me we the average joe the person that's even living in a working class family we're never going to be able to relate to that like these guys like even the worst f1 driver in the world it has got a level of money backing and in terms of a level of support that the average sportsman would dream of like uh, even like other in other levels of like other parts of motorsport like oh, I, yeah. it kind of it kind of hit me like surprisingly there are more second generation drivers now in f1 than there are in like the nascar sprint cup series yeah that is that is quite something as well and like i can tell you from a club racing perspective as well it, it happens too and like the the amount of of like envy and jealousy down there is is crazy i mean Dre, bringing it back to a, a, a relatable standpoint, it's almost like an aspirational thing. Like for me, of course, I'm the son, I'm the son of parents, working class parents, raised, born in South London. You know, Streatham, Tulse Hill, that's what it is. And um, <laughs> which just reminds me of a funny moment in college where my tutor heard how well spoken I was and assumed my entire family was middle class. Yeah. I was like, okay, do you want to call Tulse Hill middle class? But yeah, uh, anyway. On a serious I, level, like, I've been told so many times you speak so well for a black guy, like, that's some kind of surprise. Yeah, me too. Mm, yeah. Like, yeah, it's... Like, I, I, I grew up, like, ten minutes from Holes in one of the blackest communities in London. So, yeah, it's one of those situations where those, like, that's a class system thing that, you know, I don't want to go too in-depth on that because we could be here yeah. all night. But And I mean... It, like, yeah. and I think we're we're getting towards the ultimate level of just that just that core disconnection between the regular guy on the street, no matter what age they are, young or old, and and, and I mean, it doesn't even have to be because I mean I'm looking at this because of of how young people are into other stuff like fantasy stuff. It doesn't have to be on that level. It just has to be on a sort of relatable character level, like. People are into Star Wars, they're into Doctor Who, and a friend of mine made a brilliant point earlier. People get into WWE wrestling, and I'm not making this reference just to be funny. I'm genuinely serious about this. If you think about it, wrestling starts at a disadvantage because people look at it and go, oh, well, it's fake. It's, it's scripted. You know, we know the job. So they have to work from a behind the eight ball anyway to get to work that much harder to get people immersed in the suspension of disbelief and they do you know look at matches like some of the some of the best matches like one of my favorite wrestling matches ever bailey versus sasha banks last year at uh, wwe nxt takeover brooklyn mm -hmm. an amazing amazing wrestling match and now you can try and watch that and go it's pre-scripted they know the outcome of it they're just doing blah 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 but I defy you not to get involved in that match. And there were grown men in tears at the end of that match when Bailey won the NXT Women's yeah. Championship. 
Now you look at that and go, that's ridiculous. That shouldn't make sense. But people get into Star Wars. Yeah. People get into Doctor Who. People get into these, you know, Breaking Bad, Lost, so, all these other shows. So motorsport surely has to be an advantage. You know, it's, I mean, it's not scripted at all. It is, you know, whatever I, jokes I, about NASCAR. I have a question here. I have a question. Sure. I'm going to cut you. Is Lewis Hamilton going to be that crossover guy for us? And, and if not, what's it going to take? Well, I, I don't oh. think Lewis Hamilton can do it on his own. I think he's done great things, but, and I mean, that's why I'll never... I'll give you my standpoint. Hamilton's done a great job in getting the sport into areas it would never even touch from a social standpoint. And that's why I will not complain about his, you know, his crossover work, his rap albums, whatever. We can laugh about it. But in part of that, you know, race fans, what's the automatic reaction to race fans? We laugh at him for it. It's almost like motorsport is this exclusive club that race fans sort of go, it's like a sort of after-school club. It's like, ha, well, the jocks can't get us here. This is our thing. This yeah. is our thing, like, and we're the, well the, into it. The, the mortals can't get into this. Like, to me, the, th- the thing that, you know, I think F1 needs to change the way that it's covered. The way that it's yes. covered is it makes it seem like it's all about quarterly reports. It makes it seem like it's what <laughs> have you done lately, when to me, one yeah. of the one of my favorite moments of this season was a moment that did not even take place at a racetrack. It's when Pastor Maldonado visited Felipe Massa and his family. To me, that was the best moment of the season, because Absolutely. It, it showed them being, like, genuine people. Like, they... It showed them being drivers. It showed them being people I would care about. Just like just walking down the street, I would care about. Yep. And ultimately, like, I think what we've just done as well is nail why some people get nostalgic over people like James Hunt. Because what James Hunt was at the end of the day, he at least looked like he could be someone you could have a pint with down the pub. He yeah. felt like a sort of common man. I mean, of course he wasn't. He's a Formula One driver. By definition, they're not really going to be. But I mean. One of the best metaphors about James Hunt actually came from film critic Mark Kermode when he was reviewing Rush, obviously the film about he and Nicky Lauda. He put it perfectly. He said, James Hunt is the sort of real-life person that when it came to casting a film, the actor who played Thor was the only guy who could play him. That's how much of a larger-than-life presence James Hunt was, and that's why people loved him. He had that sort of relatability but superstar power like a sort of Freddie Mercury or something do you know what I mean and I'm not saying there's not stars like that in modern sport absolutely not we've talked about it before there's guys like that in IndyCar someone like fucking James Hinchcliffe no actually like I I feel like anybody could be that person like anyone could generally be that person it's just the way the media portrays them that that they're more employees than people yes good a good way of putting it they are employees of the machine yeah, they are all cogs in the wheel. Yes, I, and I, and I think you know I think what we've we've come to the conclusion here the motorsport at all levels has that sort of problem with inclusivity. Yeah, that sort of feeling that it, it it's not a sport for everyone. It's it's not a sport for everyone to compete in or be involved in, and I think ultimately that's the question that individual sports will have to address. Like. You know, there can be a million articles about how NASCAR isn't addressing the younger demographic, but let me tell you right now, an infinite amount of changes to the chase format hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, like, oh, like, to me, because it, when, when it comes to before you make your like, before you make your point, you know, trying to patronise younger people, going, oh, 
Well, now you'll pay attention to our racing series because it's shorter. We know you can't pay attention for very long. So here's a flashy thing. Like, nah. To, to me, NASCAR has a similar problem to F1. I, I feel like there's like genuinely like nothing wrong with the chase format. Like, like the chase format is not one of the core reasons of like NASCAR's declining in popularity. No, no, it's, it was it, it was kind of in a decline before then. Yeah, really. it, it's it's down to that stereotype that has been unfortunately reinforced this season. That you know, NASCAR is you know provincial. It's you know, it's old redneck guys. Yeah, I've heard the stereotype a million times. Yeah, yeah obviously, as the British guy who likes NASCAR. Again, but yeah, you're again, right. not inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we'll leave it there for the time being, but I think some points have been addressed. I personally would love to hear you guys take on this because... Yeah. Uh, well, the main reason I brought it up on this show is I wanted to start this conversation. Indeed, and perception... I mean, you could have a totally different perception on how you think F1 is, and that's the beauty of perception. Like, everybody's is different, and everybody's will have a different way of, of, of perceiving these things. Um, going forward, so I, I will. If, if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, leave a comment. Or I would love to hear it. I mean, I think the same was probably a little bit too big to put for YouTube, unfortunately. But um, you know, needs must and all that. It's it, but if you're listening on SoundCloud, please leave a comment. I would love to hear your takes on this. Again, send an email, um, send me a tweet. I mean, I know a lot of people do actually listen in real time and send us tweets, which is pretty freaking cool. Um, where that's concerned, I mean, you can tell we're all fired up by this. Of course, yeah. it's something we—it's something we care very deeply about, yeah. and you know we love this sport very deeply. But like, course. we've all we, got into this sport through our various means, normally through family association. I, my accommodation of my father and my uncle got me into NASCAR, mm-hmm. and like, I, I fell in love with this sport, and I still love the sport through the human stories. But for me, I don't think that message is getting through to most other people. So we want the best for the sport mm-hmm. because we're involved in it, and like. Just to really put a full stop on it, kind of, we've talked about this before, about YouTubers and us, what we're doing here on Motorsport 101, what we want to do. We kind of want to be the alternative sports media mm-hmm. and guys on YouTube who are not afraid to drop in pop culture references and make funny jokes about F1 reviews. You know, guys like Skelintor and, and Cook Prod, those guys. Mm-hmm. And Dre, you've often talked about making pop culture references here on the show. We want to take away that elitism from Motorsport. We don't want to cover it from this elite plane. Yeah. Like, like we, we are just three twenty somethings, three twenty something working class kids that love this sport, but are also not afraid to call it out on its bullshit. And absolutely, and I think that's the healthiest way we can look at Formula One in the mirror sometimes. And it's not that we hate this sport; we love it. We want it to flourish and succeed on every conceivable level. But this sport is neglecting the demographic that we're trying so hard to break into, and I think that's yep. why. We, we we talk about things like this on this show. We we I mean, that's the that's that is my magnum opus for this show is that we can we can be your show to lean on for people like you and me that are you know twenty somethings or that, that younger you know maybe eighteen to twenty nine demographic those people that are younger that are into the sport but have grown up in a different generation to people like Damon Hill or Martin Brundle that may be able to bring a fresh take into the world of motorsport something that is you know something that is is different but yet original but also modern and, and you know it's something that 
you know, F1 is an incredible sport from a technical standpoint, yet we often piss on that same technology all, yeah. all the time because it makes teams like Mercedes dominant entities. And, yeah, but I know, mean, with with any kind of motor race, there's something just intrinsically fascinating about a vehicle that can travel faster than any human being can run. Something intrinsically fascinating that it could fascinate anyone. You just need to find a way to package and tell these Absolutely. stories to people tell that story alongside the human story like that reminded me king of a of a meme i saw this week or a joke i, I, I actually it was packaged kind of seriously and i just sort of face palmed hard it was basically i think it was a jab at people that at the or the guys who accuse nascar drivers of not being real athletes basically it said usain bolt top speed 27 miles an hour dale earnhardt jr top speed 200 miles an hour who's the real athlete and i was like oh for god's sake can we not do these comparisons but you've kind of hit on a good point in that because i know usain bolt does 27 miles an hour on his own Dylan hunt jr does 200 miles an hour in his car but his car and his relationship with it and how he competes against other people the risks he takes you know maybe that's what we touched on before about the whole safety versus entertainment thing yeah but that's the key for me that's what gets my blood pumping and i love moments like you know the daring moves the great battles like one of my favorite youtube series is just a fan-made compilation uh you know set to music of it's just called badass moments in nascar and it's not crashes it's not crash compilations it's moments of amazing driving skill guys where they're sideways in the corners they're three wide they're diving through the middle it's amazing moments like that that make you go oh my god that's incredible do you know what i mean yeah and it's those little moments that properly for me i'm like why are we not shouting that to the world do you know what i mean because it doesn't generate money even though it very easily could and that's what makes me sad and on that note given that we've gone nearly two hours now <laughs> it's the food we were going to talk about f1 2016 but hurt but really in the context next of that week, it doesn't feel appropriate next, like once once the game actually is out we'll talk about that on next week's show and <laughs> my god three of the last four episodes we've gone over two hours which is just kind of mental in its own right but hey we're turning into led zeppelin up in here we are we're gonna like we're gonna make our songs 13 minutes longer something out of aerosmith but um it's 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 been a pleasure as always and thank you all very much for listening we just crossed fifteen thousand total plays on soundcloud since we, since we debuted there in january so thank you all so much for your continued support it really does mean a lot um, thanks everyone who watched the Dre Brief last week and Daniel Kivian. That's got over 4,000 views. I think, it's, I think it's one of our most watched videos we've ever put on YouTube. So thanks a ton. I mean, well deserved, but yeah, thanks a lot. To, uh, to everybody that did that. And um, oh my gosh, um, that was awesome. So thanks everybody for that where that's concerned and, you know, believing that we're worth talking about. But um, again, thanks for all the support. You can f- you can follow us um, on here and, and on Twitter. I'm at Harrison101HD. AJ's at AJ underscore Bombersports. And King is at Ryan Eric King. That's with a K. You can follow us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101. And if you're really, really like this, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. Thank you very much for listening. We will catch you guys next time on Motorsport 101. Until next time, I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Ryan King and Adam Johnson. Until then, I'll catch you guys next time. Bye.
Oh, go on, King. Where is it? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know when to stop the recording. <laughs>